Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. On X Hunt Elite is worth every penny. It really is. Every hunt, every planning session, every gear purchase, I was on it already today. With your Elite membership, you will get application and draw odd tools, exclusive pro deals on gear from the industry's best, exclusive mapping and scouting tools, and last but not least, access to nationwide coverage. And now Canada. Onyx Hunt Elite will make you more successful on your next hunt. Try Onyx Hunt free for seven days or go to onyxmaps.com slash hunt and use code MEATEATER for 20% off your new Elite membership. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years and not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Okay, Giannis, I want to do a, 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 like a war game exercise. War game? Yeah, where like we act like I die. Like I'm dead, and you got to carry on the show. All right, but my dying words are: um, I know that Spencer wanted to mention something, and Pat had a lot of things to talk about. That's my dying words. Okay, and then all of a sudden you jump in, uh huh, and start out, and you jump in, and here you are. You now have to to start the show. Just start the show. Let me see. I just want to see what what happened. So all right, like, like ugh, I'm dead. Damn, guys. Can you believe that? He seemed a pretty healthy fella. See, but that you're going to start the show by small talking? You're not going to come in like... Small talking? <laughs> you just died. <laughs> I can't just pass that by. Okay. Don't you think? Yeah. But you haven't, brought, mean, you haven't brought listeners up to speed. If, if I killed over, wouldn't you mention it? Not if it would interfere with the flow. No. I think they'd be, I think they'd be interested. What do you think killed Steve? At his age, probably a heart attack. <laughs> yeah. Come war. on. That, that's not going to be what it is. Well, I, I, I guess it is the number one killer now. Know, guys in the 40s drop dead sometimes of heart attacks. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Saw that yesterday. Traumatized my kids. Well, well this, they, they, yeah, they, on the sidewalk. Stop? This guy, oh, man. we're out running errands. Had to go to the hardware store. All these ambulances, some dude laying off in the grass along the sidewalk. Look. Deader than dead. 
Pat, maybe you'll uh, <laughs> since you're since you're a writer, maybe you'll write his uh, obituary for us. That's a good pivot. Wait, I, I, hold on, I'm not done yet. Oh, you're hosting. Okay, <laughs> but before you uh, get to thinking about that, and since you're here because you had a whole bunch of stuff to talk about, we also have with us Spencer Newhart, who had one in per- to- topic in particular that he wanted to bring up. What was that? It is a callback to the wolf episode you guys did a few weeks ago where it was kind of brought up in passing, but discussing why deer uh, shed their antlers. Like we know it's photoperiod and testosterone, but the bigger reason as to like why evolutionary they did that. Okay. So why evolutionary for evolutionary reasons do deer lose their antlers? So Can I like, point out here that we can't know? Yes. I was going to bring that up. Oh, good. Go ahead. So th- there's like three um, trains of thought. None of them can be proven. None of them are widely accepted, really. Oh, really? Uh, they're just all kind of kicked around. The so fir- the big why. Why in the world wouldn't you just want them all the time? Right. Like, like if you look at a bison or a sheep, why, don't, why didn't deer end up doing the same thing? Just keeping those all the time. Their headgear all the time. Now, the first two reasons are pretty simple, and they're probably the most widely accepted. But the first reason would be uh, the energy cost it is to keep those things. If you're like a big moose and you got giant paddles on your head or a big whitetail, and the purpose of those antlers is for breeding, um, why do you need them in January, February, March, April, the rest of the time of year? There's no breeding being done, so you don't need those antlers. So they just shed them. I don't know about that. Yeah, I, I'm just throwing them out there. Yeah. So that's the first one. And I would guess that that is like the most widely accepted one. It's just pretty simple. But then it doesn't really explain like why bison and sheep uh, and animals like that do keep their headgear. Yeah. So do you have any thoughts on that one? Well, if they kept it, it would have to be living. Right? Right. Because the antler is like living and then like kind of dies, right? If they kept it, it had to be living because it's going to need to continue to grow. So there's going to be blood flow in there. And I could see it being an enormous heat loss. They think that a sheep loses a lot of heat. Really? Yeah, through its uninsulated horn, you know, through horn core. I could see it being a lot of heat loss if that was alive. The energy thing, though, in and of itself, I mean, how much more, how much energy does it take to keep growing the sons of bitches? Yeah, I'd be like, I, I can't maintain my house, so I just burn it down and rebuild <laughs> it every year. So, yeah, go on. So, that kind of brings you to point two. Uh, another theory is that they shed their antlers, so they always have a fresh set for the next fall. So, during the rut, uh, we can be as specific as a whitetail. In October, November, uh, they're battling it out with other bucks. Uh, you'll see it as dramatic as losing like an entire main beam where come the end of November, you'll see bucks walking around with broken off tines, uh, broken brow tines, uh, entire main beams lost that kind of thing. So they adjusted to that by having these broken antlers every fall to just dropping them and growing new ones. Yeah. Is there any, is there any aquatic, is there any fish or anything that grows a weapon and drops the weapon. 
nothing more of. It's so weird. It's so like when you think about it like that, it's so weird. Maybe, maybe the thing that like grows a weapon and then drops the weapon, drops it. Maybe this is helpful, like for thinking about this too. Is that it's believed uh, deer grew antlers in place of tusks. Yep. Like the most primitive deer have tusks, rather than that, they got antlers instead. So maybe that like helps form your opinion of, of why they do this. Yep. Um, there's another one still. There's another one, and this say I'm gonna save mine because I don't want to do. And mine's like totally unfounded, but I'm gonna save mine. Uh, so this is my favorite one, but it's probably uh like the least widely accepted. This is like if you typed in the truth about antlers. It, it, what's that? Oh, nothing. Just a running. This is the inside joke. <laughs> <laughs> this is the, how, you, how inside of a joke that, is that? This is like the deep dark web answer. Okay. Is what he's like we had a you. guy. We used to work with a guy that always had these wild explanations for everything and conspiracy theories. <laughs> and we felt that when he does internet searches, that he must always write the truth about in order to get the kind of like he had the kind of information that seems like it would be. That would come up if you wrote like the truth about, you know, like imagine if you were studying capitalism and then you wrote in the truth about capitalism. <laughs> Do you feel that you would get the same search results as if you wrote in what is capitalism? Probably not. No. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> You're making me think of these magazine blurbs I used to write. <laughs> <laughs> the truth about the rut, you know. Oh, exactly. Yeah, you're like, <laughs> yeah. how can I make this sound? The truth about hunting scrapes. <laughs> okay, number three. Yeah. So, and, and this is this kind is of the like, deep web now, right? This is like when you talked about how mule deer came to be that time, and you're like, it's just a little bit too, uh, like, cute and tidy mm. to actually almost be that believable. Yeah. Being that deer got separated by the glaciers, glaciers were gone and then black tails and white tails came together and made mule deer right it's kind of like that and i think your the comment, hybridization event yes yeah. and your comment about that was like it's just a little bit too tidy and cute so the third theory is that um bucks drop their antlers in the winter so they can then mimic a doe because otherwise predators like wolves mountain lions bears coyotes once snow is on the ground and it is post-rut, they would recognize those bucks as being malnourished individuals, and they would seek them out and kill more bucks than they would otherwise. So to combat that, deer then started losing their antlers to look more like does and not have these very obvious signs saying, I am a weakened animal. Get me. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I don't know. Are you familiar with the um, Stephen Jay Gould? He wrote a lot about genetics. No, is the turkey named after him? No, <laughs> no. He has a thing where he's like, "Why is bark brown?" Right, right. Is bark brown because it's advantageous to have brown bark? Or is bark brown because it just happens to be brown? Maybe it's advantageous to have bark. It's advantageous to have a protective cover. And it just so happens that protective covers, such as bark, tend to be brown. And there's nothing driving the brownness. 
But we'd look and be like, hmm, why is it brown? And then we'd go like, ah, I think it's brown because it's camouflage, or I think it's brown. But it's just, maybe there are advantages to being brown, but that's not the one pressure. Does this make any sense, Yanni? Yeah, totally. So I don't know. I don't know. Uh, so, so you're saying you, I, I accept all these are all great things. I just don't know enough about like the early forms, you know, like the early, like, like what was the first thing that started to have a thing that shed? What did it look like? What right. are the circumstances that it lived under? Did it live? Did the first cervid that was, that began shedding an antler, the first thing that emerged <laughs> as a cervid and it began shedding an antler, was it dealing with wolves? Mm-hmm. What were what was it dealing with in predation terms? What was like like it, it, yeah? So one there's one, a man that knows. There's a man that would have a really good sense. Yeah, we're gonna have him on in the in, here in an upcoming episode. There's a man we're named ask him. Yeah, Doug Emlin. You're welcome to come. I, I listen. You. I like everything you're throwing. Uh huh. I like them all. Yeah. Uh, so, but 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 uh, it's just it's difficult for me. That Did third you, that third one's a lot of fun. But there's uh, Doug Emlin specializes in animal weapons. Okay, and this is uh, on topic with that. Uh, one of the things that you could be like, nope, number three doesn't work, is because in Yellowstone, after wolves were introduced again, mm-hmm. um, they noticed, and there was a, a scientific study done on this a few years ago, that uh, the wolves weren't killing that many males or were not killing that many bull elk besides in the winter. And the elk that they were ki- killing um, were ones that still had their antlers. And then, no, am I getting this wrong? So, so they were saying that uh, in the winter, when elk, when bull elk would start shedding their antlers, the ones that shed sooner got a head start on growing their antlers for the next year. Okay. Uh, and, and they were healthier. The ones that shed sooner were healthier, and predators would know this, that those ones were healthier, so they would seek out and kill the ones with antlers. <laughs> I might have That makes a up. little bit of sense, because I know that, that the wolf researcher, Diane Boyd, was saying how elk don't really use their antlers against wolves, and that you are packing around a lot of extra weight, and it is a signifier that you are entering the winter in a depleted state. That you could pick up, like, you know what? The ones with the things on top of their heads seem to be in not the best shape. They seem to be a little worn down. I, I might have butchered that story. Oh. Come back to me on that. You want to check it out? I want to check that out. Well, that's why I said about whitetails, too. It, uh, fawns go, go first, bucks next, and does last. You know, winter starvation and predation that the, you know, like when they're getting preyed upon, the, they, like Diane was saying about hitting the young. And the ones that give them the opportunity, and quite often these bucks come into winter worn down, and they're sitting way out in the, in the fringe of these yards. Sometimes the wolves pick them off. You know, they know they're run down. They they don't they don't have the stamina, the strength they had a month earlier. You know, so they those those predators. I, I thought it was fascinating too. Yas's comment on the your um your chickens and mm-hmm. backyard stuff. How when they start showing a sign of weakness, somehow they disappear. Yep. And there's things that these these predators pick up on that we have no, at least in the modern humans, don't have that awareness. So funny you mentioned Giannis chickens because chicken uh, egg sales have we we touched on this and egg sales have really dropped off. He came in all 
pot with a couple dozen eggs and then it just really tapered off. Um, Pat, where do you, uh, Spencer's going to do a little research. Mm-hmm. I want you to talk about <clears throat> the guy that found the dead people with his yeah. sonar machine yeah. a long time ago. Yeah. But uh, there's a bunch of other stuff we want to talk about. Okay. Which do, you, which do you care about talking about first? Let's talk about Rick. Um, the guy's name is Rick Kruger. He lives in Madison, Wisconsin. Yeah. And just a quick aside about Rick that how we came together, and this is one of the things I like like about the kind of work we do, how you bump into people sometimes and meet acquaintances. Is I screwed up a story one time about a fishing exposition. Who was who were the speakers at a fishing exposition? I mentioned this guy, Rick Kruger, and I gave all his details. And then the third Rick Kruger writes to me and says, "It's very nice, but that's the you, know, you got it all wrong. That guy's a fishing guide, and what I do is I run run sonar." In the mass and lakes, and I look for, oh, structure, cars, anything that's been thrown in the bottom of the lake, basically, or ended up in the bottom of the lake. Oh, I'm back up, man. Yeah. You're writing about a fishing exposition, like yep. a convention or whatever, yep. or like yep. a trade show. Okay. And you see that there's a guy, Rick Kruger, going to talk. Yep. And you mix yep. up, and I, I, you think it's a fishing guy, Yeah. but in fact, it's supposed to be a sonar guy. Yeah. Okay, so the sonar guy yeah. gets a hold of you and says, "Wrong, Rick." <laughs> and it's, and I said to him, "Well, I, I owe you one. I you know, I screwed it up. I I do apologize because now some people who wanted to hear him talk, you know, anyway, I can't remember which one I screwed up anymore. But anyway, I, so I met this guy. Is that Kruger like Freddy Kruger? Yeah, mm-hmm. he spells it K R U E G E R. Yeah, okay. and he's um he it turns out you know it was one of the best mistakes I've ever made in my career because I it ended up being the most fascinating day I spent with a guy in recent memory where you get out in the boat and he was showing me around Lake Monona in Madison. And he started telling me all these different history, historical stuff about the lakes based on stuff he had found on the bottom of the lake. And, you know, like a hundred years ago and people would get toward fall, if they had a work barge out in the lake, rather than go to the trouble of bringing that barge in and hauling it out of there, they'd just sink it out there in the lake. And, and they, he finds all this kind of stuff out there and just sunken boats and the most fascinating with with a regular fishing device. Yeah, they're they're high end. He has he has two of them. At least he had two of them the day I was with him. He had one over here on the side and one up on the screen. And then they can see off the sides. They can see down the you know, down straight down. He had them looking at all, all angles. And these screens he's monitoring. He he kept pointing stuff out to me on these screens and basically telling me you know what, what he's looking at because you know like my untrained eye I couldn't really figure out even with that good sonar screen what he's looking at sometimes but then once he showed it to me then i could understand but he said you're typically looking at it like a shadow i guess off those sonar units and but as we're talking and he's telling me some of the unique things he's found i kind of said well what's the coolest thing you ever found what's the thing you're most proud of because this is stuff sometimes going down 70 feet into the water and because what he does is he finds a thing tries to identify as best he can with the sonar but that's still not an actual picture. So then he, he takes his uh, underwater camera and lowers it down, tries to get a better look at it, and then brings it up. And if it's something he wants to really get a good look at, he'll either um, go home and look at it on the computer screen and, and see it in better detail, or else he'll just dive down. And so the story he started telling me was about a, a, a car he'd found over on another mass in Lake, about 10, 15 miles away, called Lake Wabisa. How big are these lakes? These are, um, the Madison Lakes, there's four of them, and Monona's the second biggest one. I'm not sure in terms of acres, but I guess, I think Monona's probably about, oh, three or four miles across, 
kind of a circular type shape. Oh, so big lakes. It's good, it's good sized lakes. They're yeah, called like, Madison lakes. Yeah, the Madison chain of lakes are basically, um, you know, a generic thing. But if you're in the Madison area, the real famous lakes: Mendota, Monona, Wabisa, Wingra, and they're Wingra's the smallest one. Mendota's the biggest one, the deepest one. Monona, I'm not sure the maximum depth, maybe 60 feet, 70 feet, someplace in that. Another Rick Kruger story before we go on, the most famous thing that ever happened on Lake Monona, that's where Otis Redding, the famous singer, died. He was like 27 years old, plane crashed. Otis Redding died at 27 years of age? Yeah, 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 sitting on the dock of the bay. And that I guy. Know that. Yeah. And then he died. He died in that, he died crashing into Lake Monona in the winter. And it, No shit. Yeah, no shit. Really? And and, and Rick, Rick to this day is, He's the guy that wrote sitting on the dock in the bay? Yeah, and recorded it back in it's the- It's fitting what? that he would then die in the water. Yeah. Spooky stuff. Yeah, he was and, wishing he was on the dock. <laughs> Didn't quite make it to the dock. Yeah, huh? Yeah, that's where Otis Redding died. That's great. Yeah, I mean, too bad for him, but yeah, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't mean it's great. You know what I meant? Well, it's it's cool. Interesting. It's an interesting <laughs> factoid that a lot of people don't know about Madison, Wisconsin. That's where Otis Redding died, and he died going into a lake. You know, for some reason, Buddy Buddy Holly, everyone knows he died in the crashed in a cornfield in the middle of winter or whatever. It was April or whatever. Yeah, but um. For some reason, people don't make that connection with Otis Redding and how he died. And, you know, at such a young age, this band and, you know, I think it was like six, seven people in that plane that went down. John Denver. John Denver, too. What, he ran out of gas or something? Died in the airplane. Yeah. yeah. Well, Rocky G- Mountain High. And Jim Crow. Yeah, you probably liked that song because you lived in Colorado a long time. <laughs> Rocky Mountain High. Well, Jim yeah. Crochet, too. So, uh, yeah, get back Freddy Krueger. Get back to Rick Krueger. Rick Krueger. So, um, Chopped a bunch of people up. No, I'm so, joking. so. <laughs> Hey, when you get to a really suspenseful spot in the story, yeah, and this is a good story, yeah, stop. Okay, and we're gonna check back in with Spencer about his uh, about the about the okay antler problem. I think I know a good spot to stop. You got like a suspenseful yeah. spot, okay? Yeah. Well, I think I do anyway. So there you guys are. Okay, you say to him, "Hey, man, what's the weirdest thing you found out in these lakes?" Yeah, yeah, and he didn't even hesitate. He started talking about um, he was over on Lake Wabisa, and he told me about he's. Tell me the story where he said, you know, two guys years ago went out ice fishing like two o'clock in the morning. And this not is, sober. Not probably not sober. They've been out partying most of the night. They're um it, the guy's name is um Ron Wick and Carl Stoltz. Uh, Rick was Rick Ron Wick was um twenty years old and, and uh, Stoltz was twenty three years old. And they um they were out partying, they even had a girl with them for a while. And they asked her if she, if she wanted to go out there walleye fishing with them. <laughs> and she, fortunately for her, turned them down. Instead of the old, like, do you want to come back and see my aquarium? Right. You're like, do you want to go with me and my yeah. buddy here yeah. out ice fishing? Yeah. So, and she, uh, and she, she said no. She declined. She, she'd had enough for one night with those guys. So I like these guys. They got their priorities <laughs> and very straight. Admirable guys. And they, so they, um, after they dropped this this young lady off, they 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 knew a, knew of a bait shop in town that had one of those all night things. You press a you know this is 1961 by the way, 1961. This story starts um, February 21st of 61. They, they go to a bait shop, ring the doorbell. A woman answers, comes in, and she they want want a walleye bait minnows, and they're talking to her. Oh, hold on a minute. Okay, I was picturing for a minute that you meant a vending machine. Nope, because that was a thing for like some period of time. Right, but you mean a twenty-four hour this, ring, like yeah. a twenty-four hour hold, like right. a, like ringing the bell at a motel in the middle of the night. Exactly. Yeah, and you could summon 
someone to sell you bait <laughs> yeah. at two in the morning. Yeah. I bet that place is not yeah. in business. Not in business anymore. <laughs> no, those kind of places are long gone. But, but, you know, I remember those kind of places when I was a kid. You know, I was, I was in 61, I was five years old. But I, um, see, this all comes back, this all comes back to me at some point. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, so they go to this bait shop. And while they're in the bait shop getting the, their minnows, this woman, woman um, is probably thinking this a little bit weird that they're here at 2 o'clock in the morning, but the, the guy says to her, yeah, don't you think we're a little crazy to be going out fishing in the middle of the night like this, 2 o'clock in the morning? <laughs> and I don't know what she said, you know, but that wasn't a newspaper story. But anyway, these guys go off and leave, leave her while she ended up being the last person I ever saw them. And, well, Rick knew they are gone. And back in the 60s, when this was happening, this, these guys disappeared. It was, uh, it was a, a local story that went on for years. They were gone. And there's theories like they actually went out, to, out west somewhere and started their life over. But one of the guys was married. But wife never heard from him again. Mother never heard from, from them again. And all these kind of things. And I remember... And they like bought the bait. They bought the bait and commented on it in order to like create a yeah, false just, narrative. Yeah, they, they had you know. There's all sorts of stories going around town about what happened to these guys. And were they ne'er do wells? No, I think I think they had been working till like um, ten o'clock that night, whatever the job they had. Okay. And they got off work, went partying for a little bit, and then went went to the bait shop and on their way out. Yeah. Well, the the one thing you should know about the Mass and Lakes, and this goes back to that era, they had outlawed driving on the lakes with, with a car. Years, decades ago, at the time these guys were um, doing this, these guys knew that it was against the law to go out in the lakes driving on a car in a lake, but they, they apparently knew of a spot on Lake Wabisa. I think a, I think a guy is either a, a, a relative or someone they knew had an access road that went out on, the, on this lake, and they'd been going out there at night fishing. And so this wasn't the first time they'd done this. And so they knew of this spot. Tell what they're driving. And they're driving in 1950. Uh, Ford Coupe, and so it was an eleven-year-old car, and they, Rick, Rick had done enough research on these guys, so he kind of had some some knowledge of, of what the different theories were. Because now, you know, so now we're we're kind of going back and forth between eras here. Rick didn't find their car. They went down on February first, February twenty-first, nineteen sixty-one. They sat in the bottom of Lake Wabisa for forty-five years till Rick Kruger found them. Now. So, Rick's operating theory was that, you know, there's different theories on where these guys went down. Some people thought it was Lake Monona because they found oil popping up in, in weird places once in a while. They even had a psychic come in and try to figure out where they, where they were. What did the psychic think? Psychic th- thought Lake Monona, which was, you know, where Rick made... Based pre- off what? Psych- who knows? He's a psychic, Steve. You know, <laughs> he, he stood on the shore and... Got whatever vibes he thought he was getting from who brought a psychic in? Well, I don't know if it was a family or or who brought him in. I have no idea. I, I mean, that'd I, be an interesting guy to get a hold of. <laughs> well, he's probably long gone by now, but yeah, you're but you know, right. well, some of that stuff, some of that, some of that stuff that psych, psychics do, you know, once in a while, there's some weird things they do. So he just stands on the but, beach, but, he's but, like home. But I, I think, I think one of the stories, this is going to be a long story. But um, no, but, no, this story is not long <laughs> enough. But what, what, one of the sto- one of the things that a psychic, um, well they, I think they actually went out and, and searched one of the sites he was getting some vibe off. Of. <laughs> and I think <laughs> that, they found like, that, that vibe that dead people throw <laughs> off at the bottom of a lake. He was getting that vibe. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm not an expert on on psychics. So. <laughs> 
but but I think they actually did do a search based on something that he um, sensed. And I think they found like a steel beam out there or something, or there was something out there, but it was just not not the car, obviously. So Rick, um, (sighs) Pat, I'm sorry. No, I appreciate you bringing it up. (laughs) Stuff like this makes me so gets me so agitated. Yeah, I I'm with I'm with you because I (laughs) psychics and that kind of stuff. I just always go. And then they found a beam. Yeah. So, they, so you, you dive around the bottom of the lake, and lo and behold, there's a beam. Yeah. And the psychic says, oh, you know, I knew it was something. <laughs> yeah, well, 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 you know. <laughs> I thought it was a car with two young gentlemen in it, but it turns out it was a, a beam. But I'm My guess, bad. I'm guessing it's like, like a lot of things. When you screw up, you just kind of quietly disappear and hope no one brings it up again. Okay. So, know, so, so, he, so he, the psychic. That just shows that, the mystery and desperation. Yeah. And, and. And that's a, another whole aspect of finding people after they're long gone that Rick talked about. It was pretty interesting. But so the psychics on the picture, Rick um, always w- went back to this idea that he thinks that they went on, on Wabisa based on the fact initially the police, when they were, because, you know, these guys were gone for a couple of days before anyone really realized, hey, what happened to Carl and, and Ron? You know, and then, then once the police got going, they went out and they found some tracks coming off of this one um, access road. Okay. And so they'd find tire tracks. But what, what had happened in the days, a couple of days um, that went by before they actually realized, oh, God, these guys are gone. We're, what happened to them? And then they finally started backtracking them and they got, and some, I think that bait woman notified the police or something. Hey, I had two guys in here that are night, matched that description, might have been them. And so, so Rick, that's one tangible thing Rick had to operate on with these tire tracks. But what had happened was after they were five, they realized they're missing. They start launching a search. Well, by that time, this, there had been a warming um, spell going on. So the lake had been getting you know, softer. The ice was getting softer. This is like, you know, like I said, late February. And by the time they put airplanes up to go look for holes in the ice, that kind of thing, there was so much water on top of the ice and people who live in the north know how that happens in spring, you know, late winter, that they couldn't see anything noticeable down there. And so that this petered out. They had no no knowledge of where these guys went to if they went off on Wabisa or if they died on, on Lake Monona. But they're pretty sure they're probably out there somewhere. Were both guys married? No, just the one. I think I think the older guy, Carl Stoltz, the 23-year-old, I think he was married. So it was the younger guy. Was the younger guy with, was he courting the woman? Uh, now, Rick brought that up. And then that's where um, there was some controversy there that never, um, mm. it got kind of interesting was that there was some speculation that this Carl, the, tw- the 23-year-old guy, was maybe not the, the, best, the best husband, you know, that there was some- Maybe inf- he was courting. Some inf- yeah, that basically he was hitting on her, basically. I think that was the story. Mm. And, but again, this is not, you know, here I feel like I'm in the National Enquirer because typically <laughs> as a reporter- you're not comfortable with this line. I'm not of, comfortable with this line of pursuit because this is all stuff that that um is kind of hearsay. You know, okay. I never got this from anyone besides just filtering down through the years. Yeah. Another quick question. Yeah. Here. Um. And I didn't catch this when you and I discussed this over breakfast one day. Mm-hmm. Rick Kruger, the sonar enthusiast. Yeah. I didn't catch that he was aware. I didn't catch well, that this knew, is that, that, a personal mission of his. Right. Yeah. What. Was he? Did he remember it from childhood? 
he has a long history in the Madison area of looking looking for stuff in the bottom of the lake. So this story of um, the two guys disappearing, that was, even I knew about it. And and, and the reason I really connected on, on the story with Rick, after, you know, I didn't know he, he, I didn't know he was the guy that found it until we were out in the boat that day. But you knew that it had been found. Uh, yeah, I, I knew it had been found. And I also had, a, I have a vivid memory. Like I, I think I said to you in my email the other day, it haunts the shit out of me. Because I remember when I was eight years old fishing on, there's these four big stacks in, on the isthmus in Madison between the two lakes. And we were fishing bluegills out there. And my dad was telling my uncle about these two guys that disappeared. And my dad was a firefighter, so he was on these you know, rescue or those ambulances in those days. So he knew all these stories that were going on. And probably, and probably some of the stories I'm telling you yeah. are stuff I remember from dad talking about it because he was involved in the search and stuff, trying to find these guys and what happened to them. So I remember hearing this story while we're fishing bluegills about these two guys that disappeared falling through the lake in, on a, in their car and they're illegally out in the lake and they fell through. And so this is always in my head that what a hell of a way to go. You know, as a guy who ice fishes a lot, driving across lakes, I always have that in the back of my mind, these two guys that when you... <laughs> Go down that fast. You're not getting out. It's horrifying. Yeah. I thought you were going to talk about being afraid of snagging into them. No, no, that, that never really crossed my mind. When I was in high school, a dude I went to high school with got drunk and stole a boat and crashed it into a buoy and they couldn't find his body. Yeah. And then my other buddy Craig's uh, uncle was out fishing and was just working the shoreline and saw an ankle. Could see like an ankle and a shoe and the rest of the body was all obscured by weeds. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't like that one yeah. bit. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. Now, I've been married so long, I can't even remember how long I've been married. Like, 15 years? And I'm telling you, man, being in a relationship that long, I'm just going to come out and say it, requires work and, like, a lot, of ma- uh, a lot of relationship maintenance. And a common misconception about relationships is that they have to be easy in order to be right. Well, that's just not how it goes. Sometimes the best ones happen when both people put in the work to make them great. And therapy can be a place to work through the challenges you face in all your relationships, whether with friends, work, your significant other, or anyone. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Here's what you got to do. Visit BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, BetterHelp.com slash eater today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash eater. Hey, everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who, over recent months, I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years you get one of these knives up and open it it is sharp like something that came from outer space and here's the deal they make knives that can be sharpened you can work on these knives if you don't want to work on them you send it to them and they'll work on it they'll get it sharp phenomenal hunting knives if you want to see them in action we just did uh me and uh john hayes the taxidermist just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear 
Um, watch that video, and in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now, for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now, you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER, and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company. Working knives for working people. 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. Lately, I've been telling you guys about Land.com, the site that can help you find that little patch of ground to call your own where you can do all the hunting, fishing, and hanging out with family you want. Land can be a great investment. Getting your own piece of land is something that can both generate income over time and also generate a lot of memories for generations to come. It's an investment you get to use and enjoy and take care of while it works for you. And any good investor will tell you to start investing sooner than later. Well, they've got hundreds of thousands of rural listings from all across America. Land.com can help you find properties for hunting, fishing, a lake house, a hobby farm, or if you just want to start a rental business slash family compound as a way to better secure future generations. Land.com will also help connect you with the right agent that specializes in rural real estate. So enough dreaming about it. Land.com is the place to find and invest in your open space. Spencer. I now have my story straight on this uh, research project. Do you care to relate your earlier to rate your earlier performance? Um, I, I don't even remember what I said now. I got so caught up in <laughs> Pat's story. We'll just ignore what I said before. Okay. So this kind of contradicts that third theory saying that bucks would shed their antlers to blend in with does and not stick out like malnourished critters to these predators. So this was uh, published last year by university, uh, by researchers from the University of Montana. And it was in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution. And this showed the evolutionary tie between wolves and when elk shed their antlers. Okay. Okay. So they discovered, and they noticed this, that uh, in Yellowstone National Park, since wolves were reintroduced, that wolves uh, hunted bulls who had already shed their antlers over those that still had them during late winter. No kidding. So this suggested to them that the antlers were uh, a great deterrent to wolves, that they used these as weapons to keep away um, the wolves. And so... Which is like a little... It, it, that's intuitive that you imagine you're, you're... Like how effectively the elk wields them or not. Like how is that a... How is there an upside to attacking something with 12 daggers sticking out the top of its head? Right. And, and But I, I think this explained to them, like, uh, you know, oh, we thought that they grew antlers to court females. But this shows, no, there's actually, like, great uh, benefit to deterring predators. One of the quotes is, we believe elk evolved to keep their antlers longer than any other North American deer because they use their antlers as an effective deterrent against wolf predation yeah you know another interesting thing about elk um is the window in which they drop is a very wide window you know you can be out spring bear hunting and see bulls carrying their antlers from the year before in april yeah yep and so this kind of goes against that third theory if if you believe that this uh, doesn't really work for that and so these elk are kind of uh like since the introduction of wolves there's a you know pros and cons so if you keep your antlers longer, 
you can deter wolves, but you don't get a head start on growing. If you drop your antlers sooner, you get a head start on growing and courtship in the fall, but you're more likely to get killed by wolves. And so they think this could maybe play out long-term, you know, change some things that uh, elk in Yellowstone noticeably keep their antlers longer than maybe, you know, the areas just outside of there that don't have wolves. Yeah, yeah. That's good stuff. Yeah. Interesting to track over time. Real interesting. And and that, uh, like I had written an article a few years ago on, you know, talking about the evolutionary reasons of why deer would shed their antlers, not just the photo period and testosterone thing. And uh, I was always real cool with that third theory, unless something came out that went against it. Because like you said before, this is really hard to be like, yup, that's why. Or even to, you know, think that we're ever going to know. And this pretty much goes against that third theory. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, it's what you're looking at um, things that in w- would influence timing, size, right? Things that would like reinforce that or not reinforce that. A, a thing that a thing that I think about with with the antlers is um, they're a reflection of um, like proportionally they get so much bigger right proportionally to the deer's body size they get so much bigger each time yes. by growing new ones all the time i'm like never mind <laughs> so it, it's it's it, so far it, it, it's so puzzling like when you said earlier that maybe bark is brown just because it's brown yeah like there's no reason <laughs> i i feel like this is so unique to cervids that there has to be like reasons behind it this mm-hmm. wasn't just accidental that uh oh the antlers dropped off this winter you know, it no, seems this like huge family, this huge family of animals all has the same mm-hmm. strategy. And it's so specific to them. Like you said before, like you can't think of aquatic creatures that do something like this. And then you get into the weird one. We're going to get back to these drowned fellers in a minute. <laughs> you get to the weird one, which is how a female caribou will grow a set of antlers and that her, that they're not synchronized with the males she has her own time of year she grows and her own time of year that she sheds and it's not in alignment with when males grow and shed and so if it's all sexual display right it's not meant to time out it doesn't time out with rut and she keeps them for a different time period and that's how that story starts to make some gravy yeah yeah when's the antler expert gonna be here soon hopefully let me know love to bug him Folks that want to prepare for the animal expert being on, um, he, his new book, his name's Doug Emlin. His new book is called Animal Weapons. And guess what it's about? Yanni, take a stab. <laughs> Antlers and teeth and claws. Yeah, good job, Yanni. All right. So Rick. Okay. Rick is curious. Freddy Krueger's cousin, Rick, is curious about what happened to the Missing ice yeah. anglers who yeah. may or may not have yeah. been fooling around. <laughs> Depends. We'd have to get the woman on the show to find out who she was right. flirting with, if anyone. If anyone. That just goes to show us how our minds work, that we assume there was a flirtation happening in that car, <laughs> in that 1950 coupe. But it could have been that they are just buddies. Why isn't that possible, Pat? Why does it have to be that they were flirting? Well... It- the time, you don't, time of day. Men flirt. I, I, I'd like I, to get her on the show. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, 
So, where'd you leave us off? Okay. So, C- can I stop you? Yeah. During my research, I think I missed an important detail as to you said that they were out there illegally. Oh, you were yeah. you were not tracking because you were reading, right? So I I feel like I have parts and yeah yeah. It, but what was the illegal part? That the they illegal were... part is that to this day you cannot drive a car on the Mass and Lakes. That you can you can go out there if you have flotation stuff rigged on your ATV okay. or your no one rigs a car with flotation because it's a refuge or why? No, it's because because you could fall through the ice and drown. <laughs> I think I think they, I think they did have um, probably enough accidents where people are going through the ice back in the 40s or the 30s someplace back in the era because as long as I've been alive you cannot drive in the okay. and lakes and like these days most people have flotation devices for their ATVs or something and they, they limit it to that but yeah I don't think it was, there is one area of Lake Monona where it's open year round because the power company has an outlet there but um, it's on, on all four of the lakes so gotcha. you can't do it um, so, the, so these guys you know they're, they're missing. They're, now they've been missing for forever, and it's, it's basically a local legend. And you know, by the time Rick is investigating it in the early two thousands, and Rick, Rick, up to this time, one thing we were starting to talk about, I think, was he had um, he was connected with um, Mass and, the Mass and Police Department, the Sheriff's Department, because he was always with all his great expertise in sonar and underwater stuff, and you know, all the different technology. He was a he's a radio tech guy. So he's always into all the stuff for um, electronics for fishing. But as time went on with this fishing, these electronics, he started to have more fun finding stuff on the mob in the lakes and investigating stuff. And he's a diver, so that kind of stuff would intrigue him. He got He's at the point now where he spends much more time still sleuthing on the mass and lakes for, for hidden stuff. And he, he's found like, um, oh gosh, just I have a whole list of stuff in this article I wrote about it. But so if we get back to the idea that what's the most intriguing thing, and he told me, started telling me that story. And right away, then I'm, he's telling me the story in the boat, and I'm, I said, you're the guy that found those two guys? Because I, I was shocked. I, I had, had no idea who I, who I was sitting in the boat with. And now he's my hero because I thought, what a hell of a thing to solve a 45-year-old mystery. So we're, so we're talking about it. He says, yeah, he, he knew they went in on that lake, Figured that's still the best possibility out there, but still, even when you have tire tracks going out off the landing, who knows where they went from there? Yeah, and psychics be damned. He thinks he thinks it's that lake. (laughs) So Rick Rick's pretty sure it's 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 on Wabisa because that's the only physical evidence there was was those tire tracks. So he he starts he's he's um methodical. He just started laying tracks with his his boat and. This is like an. This is now like I think it was July twenty second of two thousand six. So like forty five and a half years after the fact, he comes along at one of his passes, and this is just blind. He's just out there blindly searching a, a quadrant out there. Just made a grid. And- yeah, he's just you know doing his best, and he's got all the GPS stuff too. So he's probably pretty well locked on, knowing not to recover ground because that's he's doing this whole all of, all over the mass and lakes. He's out there on these grids all the time. So he he's back in that corner of this this big end of Lake Wabisa, and he comes across on his screen. He sees some, something big on the bottom at a forty five degree angle, and he's looking at it and thinking, "What the hell would that be?" And he's only thinking thick is he said it had had enough of a shape where it, where it looked like it could be a car upside down on the bottom of the lake. Upside down. Upside down. Yeah, because that, that, it was you know, the bottom of the car is flat. And he saw this forty-five degree angle thing. Oh, yeah. I got you now. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and so he, so he, um, 
he got got I think I think um when he dies, I think he always gets his wife with him. So I don't know if his wife was with him at the time or he went back and got her, but he he dove down, it was thirty five feet down. Went down there and um he he um of course went straight to the license plate. And I think he he said he wasn't supposed to bring up the license plate because you know it's basically it's um you're not supposed to be tampering with stuff in the lake bottom, but he thought, well, this is pretty exceptional. So he brought the license plate up and he's got got the numbers off, but and contacted the guy and one of the detectives he knew in the mass and police department or sheriff's department, I can't remember which which department it was now. But the guy ran the numbers on it, you know, from the back in the fifth back in the sixties to figure out that was the car. Sure enough, it was I kept, I think it was um I think it was the the, the guy um uh Rick it was it was um Ronald, Ronald Wick's car, I think, the twenty year old guy. So then they know they have they have the car now. And so of course being the morbid guy I am, I asked Rick, well when you're down there poking around in that car, could you see skeletons inside the car? Yeah. And he said, No, he said it was just he said it was so much silt down there and so much silted filtered into the car. He couldn't see anything in the car, you know. So it's not like he did, you know, try to look in there and figure out what he could see. But he says it's just a gooey, mucky mess by that point, you know, 45 years in the bottom of a lake. So then um, that was like the 21st of July, I believe. And it took him about two weeks to run back out there with a salvage barge now with a crane and everything. And they, there's a, I sent you a picture this morning on email of, the, of that. It's a great picture. Yeah. It's, this old rusty coupe, the windshield cracked. But they had it all in harnesses, and I think they used, I think they might use some flotation devices too to lift it off the bottom. Now I'm pretty sure I got this right, where they didn't find you know the remains until they got the car up on the surface, and then to do it. Um, at that point, it becomes an investigation. So they, but they found, they found the, the two skeletons in there, and the one guy's hand was you know stuck in the door like he'd been trying to get it open. Oh, yeah, and. And so that's that's the story. That's how Ron Wick and um, Carl Stoltz met the end, you know, walleye fishing wow. at 3 o'clock in the morning, and then they're on the bottom of the lake for 45 years, and all the legends about them disappearing to start a new life is all evaporated. And But for me, it was just a great um, story of a guy with a hobby who um, the police used, you know, used him a lot, his help a lot over the years to find drowned victims and and he even did for a while diving where he'd help him dive and, and find drowning victims. And he said it was uh, um, really hard emotionally because you'd, he said at, at first when he was doing this, he never wanted to be on the site when the relatives would come out and identify the body because he just didn't want to deal with the emotions of that. And he said one year though, um, a woman wrote to him after the fact and thanked him for giving her closure that she could, she now knew what happened to her son with certainty. And Ron, I mean, Rick said when he got that letter from that point on, he was no longer, um, he always would hang around them and, and try to, you know, aid, do the aid and comfort routine with these people. Cause he realized, you know, it was hard for him to pull a body out of there cause it has to be hard to be down in the water like that. And it's not exactly clear water usually. And all of a sudden, you're face to face with a body. Oh yeah, you know that's gotta be hard. But but Rick was doing that for a number of years. But then, like a lot of things, you know, he's now in his 60s, and um, when the police were using him the most, and the sheriff's department was using him the most, is back in an era 20 years ago where the you know all these different police agencies weren't weren't at that stage in the development of te- technology 
or they're as good at good using that stuff as he was. So they really used him as a tool. You know, they they, they call him Radio Rick. He's just, he's always out there looking at this stuff, and and it's it's a cool story too because to this day he's still doing it. You know, he's he's always he's he's been trying to trying to get the nailed down with some certainty Otis Redding's you know flight flight path going into the lake and what's still out there, and he's still wondering if there's other pieces of the plane that haven't been found yet. And then he's also got, he sells um, fishermen his waypoints. Like he has all these waypoints. He's got like, I think, over 400, 4,000 waypoints of things like underwater rock piles that no one knows about. Um, you know, people building in the old days illegal fish cribs and dropped them into the lakes, you know, for their own. And Christmas. he sells that information. Yeah. yeah I think he, he says he basically gas money for 20 bucks. You, know, you want my waypoints. I'll tell you, you know what what they represent and what's um what's at that at that spot. You know? Is he a good fisherman? I think he is, but it, but he, now he says he just soon go out and um look for stuff. Yeah, yeah. We were talking about something once, talking about his reluctance to be around the victims' families, and and uh, we we discussed something on this show one time that prompted a first responder to write in. It's a really touching, kind of dark story about him finding it was a nine year old boy who drowned and finding that boy and getting him up on the bank of the river and sitting with him for sitting with the boy's body for a long time, wow. waiting for someone to come. Yeah. And it was just like a, like a life altering experience. Yeah. You know, yeah. just the way it seemed like the boy could have just sat up. Yeah. Yeah. The one time, you know, one time pe- people have asked me a number of times for some reason, um, about my dad you know, when he was a firefighter. They'll, they'll make these assumptions that um, dad had a lot of traumatic things he had to deal with as a firefighter. I said, you know, he might have, but the only one I remember was one when he was on the ambulance crew and had to pull uh, an entire family out of a, you know, head-on collision, you know, with her in a station wagon, like the, the kind we drove, and he had six kids, and that seemed to haunt him. I remember him just kind of, you know, talking to my mom about it. You tell it really shook him up, you know, pulling his little kids out of the car. And oh, I'm sure, about, man. man. That's just hard stuff. To, you know, I, I can't imagine doing that. Okay, so what should we jump into next? Isle Royal? Isle Royal. Isle Royal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I have to say, what do you think, Yanni? I like it. Wolves. Yeah. So, yeah, we kind of jumped off the early introduction though, of Steve's death, you know, and uh, Steve was right back in the game pretty quickly. <laughs> oh, so. yeah, but I was just curious about this. I was just, he just wanted the intro. Just I just to wanted the game out. Just, and, he, I thought, and then he did so good. Once he got rolling, I got jealous. <laughs> <laughs> I came back in hard. So I was like, but you, <laughs> you admit your frailties. I always admire that. I was like, man, he's kicking ass. I'm going to get back in here. Well, I have to say the, the Isle Royal story um, that you guys, um, Spencer and I talked about back in February. And one of the, one thing I have to say, Steve, is I, I like working on the articles of my working off a meat eater. It's kind of stuff that, um you know, it's got some, got some stuff. It's got some depth to it, you know, where you get people on the phone, you watch and read different things that have been written about these things. And the Isle Royal one is one of the more complex things I've worked on where you, 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 um, we should probably back up a little bit. And it's basically, I think, set the table, so yeah, to speak. I'll, I'll try, I'll try to not, I really struggle how to, how do you even start writing this story? But, um, the way I, way I talked about getting into the story was back in October. The um, park service trapped four wolves, dropped them on Isle Royal, and then in January we got a polar vortex, 
And Isle Royale, if you, for people who can't picture this, it's up in the very top of Lake Superior, kind of up the northwestern corner. I'm using my hands here in, on, in the studio. You can tell you can't see it. But, Closer um, to Canada, but owned by Michigan. Yep. Yeah, it's like 45, what, 45 50 miles from um, north of, of, um, of Houghton County, Michigan, and only about 13, 15 miles, depending on where you look at it, off of Ontario and, and a corner of Minnesota up there. And so it's, and it's, it's a national park. And it's a national park since 1940. And it's been a uh, national wilderness area since, um, I think, since the Wilderness Act was passed, I think, 64. So it's a really remote, a remote island. And it's about, um, I think it's about 221, 222 square miles. Or, yeah, and I think it's like about nine miles long, four and a half miles wide, something like that. But and for a comparison, size-wise, I looked you. this up. It's the same size as Zion National Park, and it's twice the size of Arches National Park. Okay. So maybe that helps for reference as Pat tells the story. Okay. And the best we know from history is that wolves were never on, the, on this island until till about 1948. And the moose were out there, they think, in the 1910s, 19, early 1900s, that first decade of the 1900s. And the moose, pretty much for like 50 years, just you know, went up and down and the, the crashes, the overbrowsing, all those kind of things. And the wolves came out there and the wolves peaked at about, I think it was in 1980, I believe. Is that 50 wolves? I think it was. Yeah, and they're crossing on the ice. The yeah, wolves, the, yeah, and, the wolves yeah. and the moose yeah, during well, severe and, winters are and, finding. Well, that's, that's, that's the theory that they, they crossed on the ice. And, you know, because we had much more consistent winters, you know, 100 years ago, 50 years ago than we were having these days. These days, we're not getting those consistent land become essential ice bridges up between Isle Royale and the, the um, Ontario and Minnesota region. And uh, to help you out here, Pat, yep. the, the wolf population uh, peaked in 1980 at 50 wolves. Yep. The moose population peaked in 1995 at 2,450. Mm-hmm. God, there's that many of them yeah. out there? I think at, at one time, yeah. the population's not that anymore. And, but. and I, think, I think right now they're back up to 2,200. Twenty-four. They're up. Up there, pretty high again right now. The, the most recent um, census I read about the other day up there. And one of the fascinating things I thought about this was that, you know, this one guy made a great point that we don't know for certain how the moose got out there. This he's he's uh, I think he's a national park um, archaeologist type guy. There's lots of stories that back in the early 1900s that Minnesota was moving moose all over the place. And so who knows for certain that they didn't put some moose out in the island. You know, people are doing that kind of thing. Got you. hundred years but ago. But was it that, is it well known in, uh, is it well known that in the historic record, there was a period when they were not there? When wolves were not there. Yeah. 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 You know, they have no record as far as I, from the reading I did and the, the interviews I did. There was no record of wolves being on that island until 1948. No, I'm sorry, moose. And moose, moose too. Okay, so yeah. we know that it was absent moose. Yeah, yeah. and it, what, what, what the island was famous for until basically the 1900s was lynx and caribou. And the caribou disappeared around 1925, and the lynx, as they always say, blinked out in the 1930s. Just, huh. You know, for God. But, but, you know, I happened to be doing a story about, about six months ago on the Apostle Islands and some of the research I've been doing there on, on, the, on the little predators that populate the Apostle Islands, and it's not uncommon for these islands. They just have such small ecosystems. The uh, stuff comes and goes. Yeah. They get out there, and they, they 
overrun their habitat or they just yeah. realize they can't sustain themselves for the isolated population and they, they, they go out. There was even a wolf on a, an island called Stockton Island off on the Apostles. That was there and people saw it a few times and then they found it, found its body one day. They figured that's probably the only wolf that was out there. How it got out there, no one, no one really knows. Yeah. So, so this, this kind of, those weird things in nature happen. In the, you know, in, in the area around Puget Sound, in the time that I that I lived out there in the Pacific Northwest, you'd have just think like, oh, a bear showed up on an island that historically doesn't have them. And it kind of runs around and gets in trouble, vanishes. Elk show up on an island that they didn't, hasn't historically happened. Like it swam out, mm-hmm. you know, and then it'll be in the news like, oh my God, no one's seen an elk here in 75 years. But and then the elk swims off, gets hit by a car, which is constantly happening. We're like small little populations of things or single animals will will find these places so you mm-hmm. can imagine the right situation yeah just two yeah as long as you get two yeah show up out there at the same time you could create some highly volatile you know yeah little population of animals in a, in a weird spot yeah so they so they they had these um i think what was one of the things i found kind of fun about the story was that right now here we have this a real scientific debate going on or will they reestablish this wolf population on an island that really had no record of wolves, um, you know, 60, 70 years before? There. And, and yet that humans have a much longer history on the island than, than, than wolves do and that moose do. You know, they have these uh, archaeological findings of people making copper tools, you know, thousands of years ago out there in the copper veins in, in those islands. No kidding. Yeah, that kind of, kind of interesting stuff like that. And plus the voyagers all came through there. And it says, and there's been uh, mining in, in, in more until it became a park. There is all sorts of cool stuff going out there as far as logging. You, you name it, people out there, you know, exploiting it somehow. And whereas th- I think the big question is, you know, it kept coming up a lot in these different debates is, you know, if wolves and moose are meant to be out there, why did it take until basically modern times to, to cross on those, on those ice bridges? Why weren't they out there earlier? And I, I never heard that theory that, that, when Minnesota's moving moose around and doing various introductions, reintroductions, yeah. that there was the idea that maybe someone yeah. turned some out. Yeah, it's one of those unprovable. It yeah. might might be a wives' tale. And I mean, that's you know, I think you and I and all of us in this room have been have tried tracking down enough wives' tales. It's just you know, they're 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 plausible given the given the era of what people were doing. I mean, I was thinking of Anacostia Island off of Quebec, where the guy had this big turned into a deer. Um, sanctuary basically and now i don't know if they still i'm sure they're still hunting deer out there but they're moving moving fish around you know dropping fish out of airplanes in the mountain lakes doing all sorts of stuff 100 years ago that you know in these days we just wouldn't do yeah. we, unless we really know have a pretty good sign what we think is a good scientific justification for it um so in so they peaked the wolves peaked on in 1980 and then they I think they're tapering downhill pretty steadily. And then about 1998, um, a male wolf showed up apparently and did just a good job breeding the wolves that were remaining out there. That there's, you know, basically, he had his, apparently his genes got every wolf that was out there. Old like, gray guy was his well, name. Well, thank you. Old gray guy? Great Old having, gray guy. And it's great having this, this, this expert here. Shows up and just starts breeding his ass off. He, yeah. he was responsible at one point for 56% of... Uh, the wolves on the island; those were his offspring. Man, tearing yeah. it up. Yeah. yeah, it was. It was some. There was some stat like he had. 
he was responsible for like 45 pups and then his 45 pups were responsible for like 40 pups or something like that. Hmm. So wow. good details. Old gray guy. Good deal. Yeah. Well, then by, um, by last fall, though, I think they had, a, I think Diane said this and, um, she talked about how it came down to uh, just a male and, and a, and a female offspring of his, I think was the only, only thing left. But in the meantime, as this was going on over the last 20 some years, I mean, the, the, the wolves, they just said these things are inbred. You know, they're, they're turning up with, you know, being born blind, webbed feet, messed up spines, and, and some of the congenital stuff, some of the um, hereditary stuff that, like in the spinal problems. You know, like I think Dave Meech, this, this famous wolf biologist, said, you know, when it comes to parvovirus and some of the other things they were trying to say might have caused the, the wolf to wolf population to come down. I said, well, that, you know, that, was, that, goes, that goes on the mainland too, but not, and it doesn't seem to wipe them out the way we're thinking out here in the island. So they're never quite sure how all these things happen, but it, but the, the final conclusion was that they, in, it was, they were inbred. There's not that a population couldn't be saved. So they, they show up, they first show up in 1948. The population peaks 36 late, years later at what number? 50. 50. 50 yeah. wolves. Yeah. And then dives off till recently when it was down to just two. Yeah. And they don't know the founding event. They don't know how many wolves moved out there for the founding event. If it was I, just two I, individuals, or I, I, I couldn't find anything that I yeah. actually put a number on that. Yeah. You know, I don't, and that's which is, um, you know, that so now that now they have these four out there like last, you know, last last winter, and then um, for, there's all this discussion about well, we don't have the ice bridges anymore to get new wolves coming in, and so you know, should man step in and, and intervene here? And reestablish that wolf population, and it's been a debate going on for probably close to this this whole decade. People fighting about this, you know, in scientific circles, in the whole philosophy of it. You know, should man be out there tinkering with Mother Nature now? You know, because if because you know, chances are we didn't put we chances are we not not put them out there. So should we now go in and supplement them and, and supplement them and, and reestablish something that um was that naturally was coming down going down. Backing up a little bit, I remember if it was you that presented this, or mm-hmm. if it was someplace else I read it. But they said that after the war, a bunch of trappers oh, yeah. yep. came back. I, I reported that. Yeah. It was it was a from a it was a really really people want to go online and read watch a really good seminar. There was a seminar done in 2013 where they had these guys, um, Dave Meach and Ralph Peterson and and some other um, well, the, the anthropologist guy, the you know, historian. Really a good thing that had thing they did in Minneapolis. You can go online and search it, and it's worth a two-hour sit to watch that. Um, so where was I here after oh, the war? Was, yeah. So so one of the stories is that they think you know it's it seems plausible that during the war when all the Canadians and Americans were over, um, you're talking like, whiskey, whiskey too, World War Two, World War Two. Okay. Yes. You know, thanks, Steve. Um, during World War Two, you know. Every able-bodied man was over in Europe, basically, or out in the Pacific fighting, fighting the war. And so I think a lot of these guys that would have been trapping wolves in that region were all at, off at war. Well, in their absence, they think, you know, one of the theories is that, well, in their absence, these wolves probably started coming back up in numbers and started dispersing. And if there's always consistent ice bridges, well, probably some got out there from that region of um, Ontario and, and Minnesota and, and got this population rolling out there. Okay. So that's kind of what, what the what the theory is, but again, it's one of those stories that it's plausible, but no one really we had no way to really track the kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. So it's it's kind of speculation. But um, so when these wolves are transplanted, then from um, 
I, I can't remember where they came from, the first four they brought out there. If it's Mission Picketon Island off to the east or wherever they got them. One of them, after all this debate about ice bridges not being um, happening anymore, if you're not getting consistent ice, ice bridges anymore, well, as soon as they put some wells out there to supplement, to, to start bringing, reestablishing things, one of them takes off across an ice bridge. Runs home? Runs home. Yeah, because that, that one, I think, I, think they were, I think they may have been from that part of Ontario. And so he basically runs home. Another one tried to get home, but they think it encountered prior to that time was breaking up again and just came back to the island. But I thought the irony of it all, you know, you're trying to reestablish But it. man, you're dropping them into the happy hunting grounds, man. Yeah, yeah. But, but again, the homing in streak, and, and I think um, I think Dave Meach said when you when you try to transplant wolves from that close to their home range, you know that they don't they they, they got pre- it. They, they they want to get yeah, so that, so now they're trying to they, they've been going out and you know farther away and picking them off other places. I think they've been they've been talking about the uh, next group to try to get probably from um, the UP of Michigan to bring them up there, and so you get that diversity from around the whole region, not just from a couple of stri- a couple of wolves that came onto the island. Yeah, the first ones they pulled. They pulled him from uh, an island that's in, in owned by, or you know, an island in Ontario. Uh, yeah, are you asking me? Yeah, I think that's correct, right? They pulled. Well, four I, I, I think the first four. Some, I think I don't know where they. I don't know where all four came from for, for certain. I'd be, I'd be just pulling out of my ass if I tried to say that. I don't remember offhand. Maybe Spencer can look it up, but. I know at least one of them was that one that went back to the Ontario. Yeah. But, but that was only about a 15 mile jaunt across the ice there. And then its home range is probably farther inland. Yeah. But apparently that's where it, where it was last headed, you know, when they were, were tracking it. They think it was going back. And then once it got back in its home range, it started doing what wolves do, just, you know, doing their, their, their hunting. And so that one's gone. But then um, I think right now they're at 15 wolves. Most recent count, they brought they brought more in. They brought some in from this. I can I can never pronounce the island's name, but it's, it's um, Misha Misha Picatin or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's off the east, and that's a whole n- another story. But um, so now they got it back at fifteen, and now you know now it's going to be an, it's basically an experiment, you know, because now you have you're getting any wolves from these different regions. Well, how will they get along now? Will they form packs with different strange wolves from different areas? It sounds very, with being that national parks are, you know, expected to be a little bit hands-off or that you're trying to mitigate human, like, like the Yellowstone wolf reintroduction, right? As you're saying, well, we know that they were extirpated from human activities. Mm -hmm. So we're putting them back as a way of, of rebuilding from our own impacts. Right. But this is, um... This is not that. Right. And some people are trying to make the argument that, well, humans are causing um, the climate change that's causing us not to have these ice bridges. They're trying to make that argument that it's still human caused. And the, the point um, Dave Meach brings up is, okay, tell me how that la- lack of ice bridges is actually hurting that island, though. Can you really make that argument? What exactly is being hurt out there? Mm-hmm. And And... You know, like one thing they're they're um, looking into. I think it'd be part of this whole interesting development here as we watch this unfold. Is while the moose on Isle Royal are doing very well compared to the moose just a few miles to the to the west in uh, northern Mich- northern Minnesota, and and places where you have white-tailed deer carrying brainworm, typically they ca- cause problem for moose. Well, the moose aren't having brainworms out on on Isle Royal because the deer can't get out there because. 
you know, even if they wanted to cross on the ice bridge, well, there's been no ice bridges, so that the, the absence of an ice bridge might be benefiting the moose by nothing coming out there across the ice that could could kill them. So you, you make that argument. So it's really hard. Yeah, to, like in, the, the moose population <clears throat> benefits there. Yeah. So it, it's maybe just, someday it'll be a great source herd for moose. Could be, but you know, see, so you have a hard time making the argument that's human caused and that we're now you know fixing a human caused um situation well as being a guy who grew up in michigan we took like a lot of pride it it, it really informed the the michigan mystique knowing that we had this island that had a bunch of wolves and moose on it like you you grow Mm -hmm. up very aware of that yeah and there's a little element of look how wild and cool our state is yeah we got like the UP and then we got this crazy island. It's got these wolves and moose on it. And isn't it cool? Yeah. So I could see that losing that would make people sad. Mm-hmm. That it would feel end of nature-ish. Yeah. And that that would wind up motivating you to find all kinds of justifications to maintain right. just the spectacle of yeah. it. Yeah. And there's been, um, I think Meech started this research back in the 60s. You're studying the wolf and moose interactions and how those things, you know, fluctuate. And so they have a good, a long running um, research going on up there at, I think it's at Michigan Tech University. So it's, it's a lot of cool stuff that's come off the island. But then you get back in the whole ph- philosophical discussions of, um, well, is this a wilderness area or not? And uh, should man be in there? You know, that, that you know, you always get that great quote um, about, un, you know, land should be untrammeled. By man's and no no interference basically from man that let nature run its course out there. Why we let we always have it thrown at us all the time. We should let nature take its course. Well, when it comes to wolf, you know a lot of people don't they want they want that wolf out there. They, they, there's something about wolves that um, people really are intrigued by them. And they they protect them. Uh, it gets to be a little bit like zookeeping though. Yeah, exactly. Like. That's and where it's I like, feel. But it, and it harkens back to all these, to the, we always talk about it, how a hundred years ago, like the Maryland sick of beer, right? Like back in the day, that was just a thing people did. Yeah. Shipped animals all over the world and yeah. introduced species. Um, your fa- my favorite quote of yours, Pat, is that deer make people stupid. So do wolves. Just, dude, yeah. yeah. Wolves make people crazy yeah. a little bit. I, I've always... In my years of reporting on the outdoors, I've always thought the two jobs I would least like would be a wolf, be a wolf biologist, and be a deer biologist. Because everyone, you know, everyone who doesn't doesn't agree with you, just just too much emotion, you know, wrapped up in that stuff. The other night we had a conversation where um, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service just put out a jaguar recovery plan which you know runs from uh, like central america all the way up in, into arizona and they had in identifying like habitat usable habitat or historic habitat they'd put this cutoff marker where when looking in the united states um places that were that, that they know as like jaguar habitat they put a cutoff at 1962 so it was like from 1962 on we'll acknowledge where jaguars have been but anything prior to that is dismissed, okay? Because okay. it winds up being this very small sliver of Arizona okay. for, for suitable jaguar habitat in the U.S. And if you extend it pre-62, it gets much bigger. And you had jaguars up into central Arizona, west Texas, New Mexico. And so they're kind of like proposing a very limited version of, 
a very limited scope of what Jaguar recovery might look like in the U.S. Hmm. And now they're effectively extinct. Like now and then there's one, possibly two up in Arizona, but typically like at this particular second, maybe zero are in Arizona. Um, but it brought up this conversation about when we start to apply dates, like here's what nature should look like. It should look like uh, 1962. And that's what we'll strive toward. You get into this funny space, especially with the Isle Royal thing, where here we are like really striving hard to create um, 1980 or... Yeah. yeah, we're trying hard to like recreate the splendor of 1980, which is not, the, which doesn't resemble 1880. If we were chasing 1880... It sounds like we'd be trying to put lynx and caribou on Isle Royal. Definitely, yeah. But we're chasing something that occurred in my lifetime. Yeah. Archaeological records show that caribou and lynx were there uh, for the last 3,500 years. Yeah. So cool. compare that to yeah. wolves, moose, the last 100 years. Quite a bit different. Is it, It's just because it's wolves, man. Yeah, yeah. If it was something else... Yeah, the caribou get no love. No, we just watch, we just let the last we just let the last caribou herd in the United States blink out largely unnoticed. Yeah, no one cares. Yeah. You can't get people to care about it. The Purcell Mountains they used to drift down into Idaho Panhandle. Mm-hmm. They're gone. People, are like, eh. but then they're yeah. helicopter and wolves all damn place. And that, I I really liked this um, comment that Tom Heberlein made that, you know, there'll never be a headline in the New York Times that says, let wolves die for science. You know, we just don't do that. You know, we don't let wolves die for science. And I, and I, I think it would be fascinating to see and, and track and research what really happens on an Isle Royal if you just leave the moose alone and see how they... Open down. I mean, if the if the pop, if the if the trees get overbrowsed, they get overbrowsed, and they they've done it before. They'll do it again at some point. They'll, they'll probably eat themselves out of house home. Well, then the island will will self correct, and there'll probably be a new new era. But yeah, trying to I guess you make it make. I think my favorite point is that why would we always want to make it look like what we have right now? But that's what we do. Can't answer it. Yep. And and if you let the wolves die and, and be gone, maybe lynx will come back. There was uh, one lynx documented that showed up there in 1980 uh, across the ice from Canada, <clears throat> but that's been the only time. One, one lynx. One lynx. Uh, there was one sighted yeah. out there. And so maybe if the wolves are gone, we see lynx come back. Yeah, and and, and I, I should, to, to be, um, to, to get the other, other, other point of view though, the one thing that is different now is that, you know, they think the wolves that came out there originally were came from basically one source area. Where now they're bringing them in from these different areas and assuming they can f- form packs, get along, learn how to work together, that there will be enough genetic diversity to sustain them for a while. And then, like when I asked um, the biologists up there, well, what, what if 20 years from now, these guys start going downhill, we're going to try another transfusion, basically. Where is it all going to end? And he said, "Well, you know that we'll discuss that when we get to that point." But, but it's a uh, to me it's plausible that maybe with this these new 
different um, gene strains coming and they can sustain themselves longer out there. But yeah, I, I have to agree that for, for um, the fact of wolves, we won't be doing this. But, but even that isn't um, like natural, like trying to create a diverse population because I, I think I read somewhere that every wolf on that island descended from one female hmm. that was out there. Oh, okay. And yeah. like 56% came from old gray guy. And so by creating this island population that has wolves from like Canada, Minnesota, and the UP, that's not even what it was like yeah. during this era we're discussing trying to replicate. Yeah. No, they want to make damn sure they stick this time. <laughs> okay, Pat, let's jump gears. Okay. Change gears. You don't jump gears. Uh, Grind gears sometimes. <laughs> Dude, I'm looking again at the picture of the car getting hoisted out of that lake. Show it to me. Oh. God, it's haunting, man. That's wild. That'd be sweet to refurbish that car. <laughs> Pat, we should point this out. He wrote that article on the Isle Royal Wolves back on April 12th. We published it. I told him at the time it's one of the best things we ever ran. So if you want more on this, go to TheMeatEater.com. Uh, type in Isle Royale. You'll find Pat's piece there. Give it a read. It, it's a great piece of writing. Thank really you. informative and entertaining. Thank you. Did you get any feedback? People mad at you? No. No, yeah. I really didn't. Um, I heard from Ed Bangs, you know, the, the, the wolf biologist who did the Rocky Mountain wolf reintroduction. I tried to get a hold of Ed for the story to get his perspectives. I thought, you know, he's always a, a thoughtful guy. And, but he was down fishing in Costa Rica or someplace and didn't, didn't get back to me until after the fact. And, and his comment to me was he he kind of agreed, agreed with the Harbor line that should, let let's see what happens. And he says he said now he said I'd like he said now I'm at a point where I I think the wolves might surprise us again if you just left them alone. Yeah, and that's what made it. I guess that's what makes it kind of magical. Um, is that you had this island with a bunch of moose and these wolves found it. Yeah. Right, and they yeah. kind of ran their whatever their little course is, mm-hmm. and now. You're like, oh yeah, they're out there because we stuck them out there. Yeah, seems a little artificial <laughs> okay. for a national park for a wilderness area. And if you'd ask the wolves that they wanted to be moved, I'm <laughs> guessing they're going to tell you they'll pass. <laughs> okay, you're you're you admire you're you're a, a obituary a hunting obituary enthusiast. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, like hunter well, obituaries. One of the things I don't know what it is, Steve, but all my career as a writer. When I was at the newspaper back in the 80s, if somebody important died in town, the newspaper would come over to my desk and say, um, Pat, could you um, do a, a feature do a feature obituary on this guy? I became this kind of this obituary writer of the, for famous people, you know. Where, How do you approach an obituary? Um, boy, phone calls. You know, I, I start... When my dad died, I had a guy call me from the newspaper and um, interview me about my dad. And of course, then when, when the thing came out, it wasn't these days in newspapers, you can't get in the depth that we used to be able to get into when I was writing newspapers back in the 80s. But I, I, um, I like to think I'm, a, I'm an ep- empathetic person. And I, I'll, I'll, I'll read about, I'd, I'd go in the, what they call the morgue, and I'd find the morgue in our newspaper for these guys, read, read as much as I could about them, get a, try to get a good feel for them, and then call like a son or a daughter or a, or a wife who might be in, just interview them for, for a half hour, an hour. But they're still fresh dead and you're calling their relatives. Yeah. yeah. But, but if you do it sympathetically, 
and you know, express your condolences and that, you know, tell them you want to, you're working on a piece and you want to just man a final, final honor, woman, a final honor that, um, people are pretty, pretty good at talking to it. And you realize you're not, you're not calling there to, you know, throw dirt on the guy before he's, you know, why he's being lured in. And, you know, I, so I, I, I found that kind of stuff fascinating, but the one I, when I was mentioning to you is, um, there's this, um, guy over in, I, I don't have it in front of me now, it was a cool, cool thing about um, a guy that died while he's hunting out there, and and people so often. I get this at Deer and Deerning magazine a lot. People would die, and then the, the son would be t- talking to his dad on the deathbed. Is this what you're talking about, Steve? Like when people come into the, the man's room and he's dying in the hospital, and they're asking him, "Hey, next fall when I'm out hunting, could you send a big buck past me?" Oh. Is that what you're talking about, or, or are you talking about the the Sweden guy with the, um, the, the, the where he had a heart attack out in the woods, and it was otherwise was on yeah. an otherwise good hunt. This is what no, I'm, I like all this, <laughs> yeah. but I'm thinking primarily about the oh, yeah the people that described it as an otherwise successful. Yeah, could you hunt. read that line? Because I, I don't have it in front of me. Oh, you don't have it in front of you? No. <clears throat> okay, hold on a minute. Um. It was about a geez, you were right. Remember I said that you said if I died, you said it'd be a heart attack? Yeah. Okay. Forty four years old. Forty four here's a there was an article about a forty four year old hunter who died in the woods. And it says on November eleventh last year, his heart suddenly stopped during an otherwise successful hunt with his friends. <laughs> and that that made me think about <laughs> all these different things that um during my career that I've stumbled onto of um, whether it's people on the deathbed wishes and the other story that came up that I, I shared with you that I, I'm sorry um, that I shared with you that I thought was just a, a great commentary and it made me think of when we started talking earlier about you dropping dead on the set here what would we do well back in this, I think this is probably like in the 1940s no no it had to be about the 1960s because an outdoor writer in Wisconsin named Don Johnson. He he um, died, oh, probably about just a few, oh, about 10, 15 years ago now. But Don was a great storyteller, great writer. But he told a story of he was out covering opening week, opening day of duck season in Wisconsin back. It must have been in the, in the 60s. And he went to this boat landing and he has duck hunters would come in from, from the day of hunting because they had a noon opener. I'm not sure we have a noon opener anymore in Wisconsin, but back then it was a noon opener. So, uh, Late in the day, this 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 duck boat comes in, and he's he's starting to interview the guys, asking how the hunt went, that kind of stuff. And well, here's a a dead hunter lying in, in the bottom of the other boat <laughs> with a bunch of ducks piled. And all and, him. and they're having this conversation about, well, you know, what do we do now? Should we call it? Do we have to call the sheriff's department? We got to call the the morgue. What are you supposed to do? And Don's you know pretty baffled by all this. You know, it's a dead man in your boat. Yeah, and well, apparently the guy died that morning while they're putting out decoys, setting up the blind and stuff. And they they knew he's gone, so they just put him in the bottom of the boat, and they <laughs> had had a little discussion, and they they agreed that well, I can't remember the guy's name. Well, Fred would have wanted to keep going, so we so we did. We kept hunting, and when they got their limits or they got done hunting, they came in with this the whole time, like probably four or five hours. This guys. Lying dead in the bottom of the bottom of the duck boat. Now I thought that was just a a classic story. That you know, what would you do? Of all these days, we we would just feel 
you know, like obligated to, you know, probably come in and, and do it because you'd probably be, you know, looked down upon by everyone in your town for yeah, I you know, think so. Yeah, I you, think so. You'd, you'd just be like, how callous can you be? But then on the other side of it, I think. Well, I think it's kind of cool, you know. If that happened to me, I wouldn't take I wouldn't take offense. You immediately <laughs> agree with that? You would feel like sort of guilted into immediately doing something about it. Yeah. Or would it be more like a legal issue? No. If I was out hunting, if I was out duck hunting, and all oh. of a sudden someone that I'm hunting with dies, I would, uh, you know, I can't really say. Haven't been in that situation. I feel like I would wrap her up. I feel like I'd wrap her up, and I'd say, guys, uh, we're gonna wrap her up. And take our our dead friend here back into town, <laughs> and and notify his family. And pull the yeah. I'd go so far as to say that would be my. But I, I wouldn't think... even pull the decoys because I'd also be wondering, uh, how how did they know he wasn't? I mean, yeah. Did they administer CPR? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, he must have been just stoned. <laughs> like, let's say you let him off, and he's in his blind. And you come back, and he's just so dead that he's chilly. Yeah. yeah. But like, if if you were to fall over and seem pretty dead, yeah. How would I rule out that there wasn't a thing that could be done after I administered CPR on you, bringing me back? That I wouldn't run back to see if perhaps they'd mm-hmm. shock you back to life. So that's where it also gets tricky. Yeah. But if it was be that you're like, hey, I'm gonna go take a whiz or whatever, and and then an hour later, I go in there, you are cold and stiff. And I'd be like, there's no chance of resurrecting them. I would still wrap her up. I think Hunt's that would, over. Be, that would be my over. gut reaction. But then I think if like Pat or Spencer were like, but you know, Yanni, Steve really <laughs> liked to hunt. It's the opener. Look at all the ducks flying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I could be pretty easily persuaded. Let me put it in a Let's say this. Let's say I was in the autumn of my life. Persuaded is what I meant to yeah, say. I'm in the autumn of my life. Mm-hmm. And we all know I've already had three open heart surgeries. I'm like, Yanni, if I could just get out one last time, you know, I'm in the That was uh, a hypothetical. Steve hasn't had open heart surgery. No, but listen, yeah. Like, like, like I'm an old, 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 old guy. And, and everybody can't, they can't believe I'm still alive. <laughs> and I'm like, if you could just get me out in the marsh one more time, yeah, you know, it could that it calm my soul, and and that's how I you, dream of passing. You probably would have prefaced the hunt at breakfast, being like, "Hey, and by the way, if I keel over while you guys are shooting, <laughs> yeah. just keep shooting." And I, I could picture, even if I didn't say that, and I could picture that there I sat, and, and I'm like, "Oh, Yanni, just to be back out, like I don't ever want to go home." And all of a sudden, I go into the eternal slumber. Right, mm-hmm. I could see how you guys might, you know, shoot a few volleys, <laughs> work a couple flocks in in a largely symbolic sort of way before boating me back into town. I could see that. Well, now here's another another factor. Would you consider um, going taking Steve's advice and getting off the lake, knowing that if you didn't. He has a wife back home that would just hate you the rest of, rest of her life for not immediately pulling that body off off the lake. Yeah, you're not gonna probably going to talk to her that much more anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know what I mean? Like, it depends on how much you planned on hanging out with her after your buddy died. Good point. Yeah, this seems like irrational confidence from these duck hunters that were probably made up of like a, a banker, a welder, and an insurance salesman. They were mm-hmm. like, yep, he's gone. Nothing we can do. 
Nothing yeah. we can do about now. I'm yeah, not that, pulling decoys. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> it's opening day. <laughs> that wasn't how Don Johnson described them, but um, you know, it's plausible. Okay. Uh, but another, yeah. you had another obs- final observation about your time exploring obituaries. Is that you find that people will hope when sending off a, a loved one, yeah, into, yeah. into death, that they'll hope that the person does what. In the afterlife, send a big buck their way. <laughs> I never heard of that. Oh, I, I tell you, if I, <laughs> I mean, he's, 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 he wrote about it. <laughs> oh, no, now I have. <laughs> that, that was one of the. Well, my, you know, Steve's favorite quote of mine is, "You know, deer make people stupid," and that was one of the things that used to just amaze me. How many times I got a, got queries and manuscripts over the transom out of the blue. From people with that kind of storyline, where the you know dad's on the deathbed and you know juniors in there you know t- knowing this is this is it and and hey dad you know if you get a chance send a big buck man way this fall and I, and I like I always think yeah shit that was my last chance to you know do do a, ask for a favor that once he's on the inside like that <laughs> mm-hmm. that's you know. why I think it might be a little <laughs> bit more in jest than no no, no, no. The, the stories I got Giannis. The stories that were written and sent to me that I, that I never published, these were um, those guys' heartfelt sentiments. They were pitching you this while you read deer and deer yeah, hunting. Yeah, yeah, and and it, and some stories you can get from deer hunters uh, along those kind of themes really are touching. They're, they're some of them were really well written, and maybe somebody could pull that one off and make it a well written request. But the guys I heard from, I never, I just never could, could quite buy it. Yeah, but you know. Can, you can't be like, uh, you know, have him send world peace my way. Right. <laughs> right. It's not going to be true. like, you can't have it be like a huge thing. And you, rem- you, you remember the hunting yeah. times together. Yeah. It's not going to cost, you know, it's not a, hu- it's a, not a humongous miracle. Yeah. It's like a, in the scheme of miracles, it's pretty mild yeah. to be like, you know, I don't want to over ask here. I don't want to be like a prima donna. Uh, you know, I'm not like asking for wealth, great yeah. wealth, and 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 fame. Just if you could, you know, just a nice buck, well, <laughs> like a nice buck. I mean, how bad? Like, you know, how bad could that be? You only got these queries if Dad followed through and sent them a big buck, right? Like, it was never that son of a bitch. Like, no big you know, buck came by me this far. I don't think we ever. You know, I don't recall that anyone actually had the, had the big ultimate you know buck come by. Oh, you know, these were typically just wishes and stuff. I okay. think I, I don't recall it ever being um, a guy. I, I don't I don't recall anyone ever attributing a big buck they got to that to the deathbed wish. That's no. helpful. I thought no. you were getting like a follow up. No, no, to... these are just. Tip, I think there's kind of tend to be a sentimental story. Mm. And I thought it's the kind of story that let's say you now if Steve Ranella were to write that kind of story, I think I'd probably buy the story because I thought it'd probably be pretty well written. But typically, the stories I got, you know, they weren't they weren't that they weren't convincing. So I, I, ne- I never never um, bought any of them. I was listening to a elk calling instructional tape. I just switched, so now when I drive around, I have an elk calling my mouth instead of turkey calling my mouth. Um, and there was a peculiar passage that the, the narrator. Wow, I'm impressed, man. That I'm getting into it this early. Yeah, turkey season's not even over. Yeah, but I'm moving on in my mind, man. <laughs> Moving out of my mind. That's what I got. Are you frustrated by the turkeys? Turkey calling? (laughs) Not at all. No. No, I just was like, (laughs) ready. It's May, man. I mean, yeah. You know, before we know it. Yeah, it's like before we know it. Um, (laughs) 
in this instructional thing I'm listening to, there's a, there's a, there's a thing that the man, there's a audio uh, recording of a, of an actual hunt. And a, you hear a guy kills a bull elk with his bow and you hear him talk about how, and he names the, the bow, the, the, the bow manufacturer. Okay. Names the bow manufacturer by name and talks about the, the, the lightning speed with which the bull died. And he says, I couldn't have asked the Lord to help me kill it any quicker, hmm. which I thought was like a, uh, just a strange observation that you would, that, that like, that, that would be a, a ask. Yeah. That, you know, I like I could, even if I had, like, if I had asked the Lord to kill it faster, he couldn't have helped me like this bow killed it so effectively that even divine <laughs> intervention couldn't have added anything to this bow's power. I don't know if that's how he meant it to come across, but it just struck me as a, that's as how a you, it's like, that's how it could be read. Like, yeah, I just, I remember it's like, it's, it's like, I, I appreciated the acknowledgement, but then the more I thought about it, I'm like, that is a weird commentary on your perception of the Lord's power that like this bow is, <laughs> is a you very that. swift killer. <laughs> <laughs> that person did not think it that far through. Didn't think it that far through. But, but I think that's one of the fun things of writing and editing is um, when people write something like that, when you realize it can be read in a way that might not make you look like you want to be viewed, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, but, it, but I think that makes it into print. Now, Pat, there's one last thing we wanted to talk about. Okay. If you're into it. Oh, I'm into it. Um, The Wrath of bird watchers hey everybody i'm talking here about montana knife company from our very own state of montana this company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world josh smith who over recent months i've become friends with and my god have i learned a lot about knives from this guy just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives josh has been making knives for 30 years, you get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, watch that video, and in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now, for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now, you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER, and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company. Working knives for working people, ten percent off with the code Meat Eater. That's a good deal. Lately, I've been telling you guys about Land.com, the site that can help you find that little patch of ground to call your own, where you can do all the hunting, fishing, hanging out with family you want. Land can be a great investment. Getting your own piece of land is something that can both generate income over time and also generate a lot of memories for generations to come. It's an investment you get to use and enjoy and take care of 
while it works for you. And any good investor will tell you to start investing sooner than later. Well, they've got hundreds of thousands of rural listings from all across America. Land.com can help you find properties for hunting, fishing, a lake house, a hobby farm, or if you just want to start a rental business slash family compound as a way to better secure future generations. Land.com will also help connect you with the right agent that specializes in rural real estate. So enough dreaming about it. Land.com is the place to find and invest in your open space. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Yeah. Um, As an audience, when you write about wildlife. One one of the fun things of writing an outdoor column all these years is that, you know, you start figuring out there's certain different groups of people that are reading you. And I learned a long time ago that bird watchers, anytime you write about a cool thing about birds you've observed, they appreciate it because they think they don't, they probably see a whole lot of things written about um, different birds. So one thing I've always liked doing over the years is just writing um, basically backyard observations about birds I see and then uh, getting into how woodpeckers are able to hammer away all day and not have their brains get rattled and look into this kind of stuff. And so anytime I write about birds, I always get really nice feedback from bird watchers. You'll throw a little nod to the bird world. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, Probably every couple months, typically I'll write something about birds that's good as an outdoor columnist because another observation, I like your, your quote about how deer make people stupid, but yet another observation about being a naturalist, being a hunter and being mm-hmm. a naturalist. Mm-hmm. And you were observing how in this day and age, you can have great hunters who are horrible naturalists. Oh, definitely. And you're saying that some of the best deer hunters you know couldn't tell you what kind of tree their deer stand is hanging in. Oh, definitely. I, I can I can name names, but I, I, I can't do that, you know. But, yeah. Um so to admit it to so to mitigate that or to counteract that, you'll now and then write a you'll write a piece about birds now and then. That's the only reason I write about it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be like one of those guys. Because <laughs> like you got your game birds you, and you got your tweety birds. <laughs> Steve Rinella sees right through the bullshit. <laughs> no, I, actually um growing up I had a grandmother who lived with us who was into birds. And so I, I learned, I could identify a lot of birds fairly young, fairly, uh, young age, but then I kind of peaked out. And so anyway, I learned over the, over the years, writing my column that anytime you write about birds and the natural stuff about birds, the bird watchers adore you. I get these nice, nice emails and letters from different women that, older women typically, and, and other bird watchers who love me. But then along the way, because I'm a hunter, a number of times I've written about um Three things that I learned pissed off bird watchers. Really piss them off. Go on. The first one is to suggest something like, "Why aren't you guys paying your way on conservation on the conservation front? Why don't you, why don't you tell those binocular companies that they should be getting a federal excise tax on all their binoculars that they sell for bird watching? Why don't you put an excise tax on bird feed? These kind of things like the hunters have done and, and the gun owners have done to try to build into the conservation fund." 
boy, they don't like that. They really come after you. And what is their, what is their, what, why do they find that so distasteful? Because they aren't, they typically what they'll say is they, they don't think they're harming anything out there. So why should they be paying extra for it? They're not consumptive. They're not consumptive. Yeah. They, don't, they don't use that term, but they, they look at themselves as being, we're just um, observers of nature and you guys are takers of nature. So you should be paying something for it. They, okay. you know, they, that, that's been, you know, I'm sure there's other gut things that just bug them about the idea of, and a lot of it too is just I don't want to pay more, any more, any more yeah. taxes no I like so. it I, yeah, I could, yeah I could I could I could counter that argument but that's a, that's a fair argument to yeah. throw out there so they, so that's what, so, I, so that, that's one thing that pisses off bird watchers the other thing that pisses off bird watchers is, is um, Wisconsin until t- the year 2000 thereabouts did not have a, a hunting season on morning doves and so we had a big fight and eventually we we, um, we passed a morning dove season and because I, I'm a hunter and I wrote about why I thought it was very biologically easy to have a bird season, a hunting season on morning doves. But why not? You know, we, we hunt. We, the thing I always would point out is that name one thing we hunt that isn't pretty. Because they always say, well, it's such a pretty bird. It has it's a beautiful call. I think, well, what, what do we hunt that um, isn't pretty? And are you saying that we should only kill ugly things? That's kind of elitist, you know. You might, you might just kill the ugly stuff. That sounds pretty rotten. Yeah. And so I never, never bought that argument. So anyway, they, they didn't like me for that, and I get a, get a lot of hate mail about that. And the, the one that's still going to this day in Wisconsin and parts of the country is, um, you know, anytime you talk about hunt, having a hunting season on sandhill cranes, oh yeah, oh vicious stuff that comes in. You know, just the kind of stuff that um, I thought, man, I, I thought these people loved me. <laughs> and now they're calling me names and and just um, just beating the crap out of me. And, and I, the thing is, uh, as as a outdoor columnist, I, I'm kind of used to people taking shots at me, so it wasn't that big a deal. But I just I thought it was really interesting how I, the same people who will love me for writing about birds would turn so quickly and just really come after me. And, and you know, I, I'd say just as viciously as as the most. Um, crappy deer hunter you know when it came to um real venom i, I think on the the morning dove and say because on the morning dove and sandhill crane issue why you get a lot of resistance is it tends to be very difficult for people to accept um the onset of hunting for something that you weren't hunting previously no matter how short the window that you weren't hunting it mm-hmm. so sandhill cranes are once abundant hunting was widespread Due to unregulated hunting and other habitat issues, we had like a great diminishment in sandhill cranes, and now we're coming along and recovering them pretty mm-hmm. effectively. Yeah, but it was that period when you couldn't that just gets fixed in people's minds. So when you point, there's a perceived scarcity. So when you point out that like you know now we have as many, and we're going to add it to the list of dozens of things, dozens of species of game animals and fur bears that you're allowed to hunt. We're going to add it to this big giant list. You probably couldn't even make mm-hmm. it's so many that you wouldn't be able to list them all. We're going to add it to that big list. People get real upset. Yeah. Like morning doves in, in my home state, they still don't have a morning dove season. Yeah. Cause it's like, it's like, it's just this thing where you know you don't. And even states where that they take up, there's like a, a, a gap in hunting. You might hunt black bears for a long time, numbers get down, they end the hunting season, numbers come back up, they go to reinstate. It's very difficult yeah. Yeah. to overcome that. 
um, more so than people that wanted to take things that can presently be hunted and make them not able to hunt. It's just hard to get things up and running and hunting. Huh. You've heard people talk about it with the elk reintroductions in the East. Hmm. It's a, it's a thing that, that, that they want to make very clear, even in the onset of the reintroductions is that we're going to do this. And when numbers get high, we're going to hunt because they've had resistance where all of a sudden there's this new animal on the landscape put there with the intention of that it would be hunted yeah. and then later people are like home at what right they weren't involved in the reintroduction they didn't spend any money on it but now that it happened they're kind of like what yeah. it's like no no we spent the money to put them there yeah. with the intention that we would hunt the elk that we put there yeah <laughs> you know? well you know when it comes to our situation with sandy hill cranes i'm i'm never expecting it to pass in my lifetime but to think when i when i can have a a good conversation with some bird watchers who oppose the hunt. I asked them, well, really, have you seen anything different in the morning dove situation in the last 20 years since we started hunting morning doves? Are you, have you even seen anybody hunting morning doves? Because typically, you know, hunting is not a real, if weren't for blaze orange, most people wouldn't even know that um, there's a hunter out there yeah. during deer season. Because it's just, you know, I mean, yeah, our guns make a lot of noise, but how many people really notice? And so I, I would just, I, my point to them is that you know, if you had a sandhill crane season, you wouldn't even notice it. It'd just be, it'd be so well regulated. You're not going to endanger the species. It'd just be, you know, people like me could go out and enjoy a good meal from a sandhill crane, enjoy a new kind of hunting experience. And, you know, so what's the harm, you know, really? Yeah. Most people do not, yeah. Most people do not realize that the morning dove is the most harvested game bird, mm-hmm. most harvested anything in this country. I think that American hunters kill around 10 million morning doves is that right a year yeah. yeah but here's the thing the numbers i don't want to say that the numbers are artificially inflated but we have a lot of morning doves because of human activities mm-hmm. yeah like our agriculture <clears throat> like our agricultural crop systems have mean that we have far more morning doves than we would have in the absence of people it's one yeah. of those species that really wins it really wins around human manipulations on the landscape. Mm-hmm. So we create a giant amount of I noticed of that recently on some of the hunts we've been on where, where were we? Maybe in Texas recently. And where else have we hunted turkeys recently? Montana. Where you just see like a pair here, yeah. a pair there, you know? And they're sort of just like part of everything else. But if you go to like a place that was like known for it and where the birds are really working the sunflower crops, you know? You're talking about thousands, yeah. you know, that really, that really makes that example true. When we were kids, we would hunt them. You weren't allowed to hunt them, but we'd hunt them on <laughs> power lines because you could look down the power line and see morning doves way down. You'd kind of mark how many posts you had to go. This was the pellet guns. Yeah. You'd mark how many posts you had to go. Then you'd go in the woods and parallel the power lines, counting down the posts <laughs> And then you'd belly crawl into the edge of the cut, hoping to get within pellet rifle range of a dove on the wire. Did you get money that way? No. Yeah. No. (laughs) But then my brother-in-law had a real souped up pellet rifle that was very hard. It was a 10 pump. And by the time you got to the 10th pump, dude, it was hard to pump. And that offered like enough, a little bit of a range over our plastic stocked ones. Yeah. And so that was a little bit helpful, but no, it's not a very effective yeah. way to yeah. hunt morning doves. Yeah. Um, but we were raised to believe that it was a great injustice that Michigan had no morning dove season. 
And so it was almost an act of civil disobedience. <laughs> My father viewed it as like, yeah. like, you know, yeah, civil disobedience. Yeah. Uh, that, that you would, that you would pursue some doves. My my dad had a real problem with, with uh, the American robin. You know, it was our state it's our state bird in Wisconsin. But Dad always hated the robin because it would raise strawberry patches more than any other bird. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's such a big fruit eater. And he and he, I you know, I don't recall him ever shooting because he shot a lot of birds off his strawberry patches. But I don't recall him ever shooting a robin. But he did not like them. You know, oh, it was you know. man, we would have gotten killed if we touched a robin. Yeah, but my father had a lot of. Uh, wrath for blue jays which he identified as being robin killers oh is that yeah because they take the eggs. so in honor of the our state bird as well was the robin and in defense of the robin which he liked a lot it was in his mind there was a perpetual war against blue jays which were robin killers really and he felt that the ruthlessness ruthlessness with which a blue jay would go in and eat baby robins not just eggs yeah but kill and eat the baby robins that um no punishment was too great yeah for a blue jay and well, he would devote a lot of his winter to um ridding our yard of blue jays and they would melt yeah. out of the snow in the spring <laughs> i now i just like i don't let my kid it i don't let my kid get involved in any kind of stuff like that yeah i think there's a famous um audubon painting of a blue jay raiding a, a nest and it almost looks like one of those um dark war scenes where there's a <laughs> evil person killing the, the babies, you know, and that kind of, what's that imagery, you know? Oh yeah. yeah. You get, you, you know, everybody gets excited. You watch a Robin setting up shop and it's like the eggs. And then one day there's one in there yeah. ripping them apart. Yeah. But well, you know, where, where I realized a few years ago where I was not, not meant to be a wildlife photographer was I, there was a low hanging Orioles nest over my driveway. And I went out there with my nice camera one day to get a picture of the bird's nest because it's a beautiful oriole's nest hanging down only about 15 feet up and while i'm focusing on the the the, the, the basket of that oriole's nest i notice a blue jay hop onto the branch about 10 feet away and i'm kind of thinking what's this blue jay doing up on on that by that nest just stupid not thinking it through the blue jay hops down and i like my camera is up my camera's focused Blue Jay reaches into the nest, pulls out an egg, and I, instead of snapping the picture like a photographer would do, I, I lower the camera slightly to look at it in, in <laughs> awe and go, what the hell did it just do? And then when I finally realized it was going on, I, it was too late. It was gone. So I have a picture of this Blue Jay out on, you know, focus yeah. off on the side as he's hopping out. And then when he actually grabs the thing and my finger should be pressing the button, I'm too busy looking at him to... Trying to figure out what he's up to. Do you remember in the old days people would have, you know, like roadside attractions where you had animals? It's kind of more common than like, remember going to a place where a guy had just a couple bears for some reason? Oh, yeah, yeah. Definitely, definitely. He had like a couple yeah. bears in a fence. And you yeah. just, when you're on a road trip driving around, you'd like, he'd have a sign like, come see the bears. Yeah. I remember being at one of those places in there. I remember there's, because my dad had pictures of it. He liked it so much that there's a big like, don't feed the bears sign. But he reached in and gave a bear a tootsie roll, and the bear got the tootsie roll stuck on its teeth. And my dad took a bunch of pictures of this bear trying to dislodge a tootsie roll on the fence. Yeah, it just tickled him endlessly. But like his, 
<laughs> what he saw when he looked at animals is just different than what I see when I look at animals in some way. Yeah. You know? Like, I just don't feel that impulse. When I see it's yeah. like, don't feed the bears. I'm yeah. the kind of guy that's like, oh, you know, it must be a good reason. Yeah. <laughs> but he'd be like, well, why not? <laughs> well, Maybe I, if I feed it, I'll find out why you're not supposed to. <laughs> I, I, I've probably told you before, but I, I've told you and I've told Randy Newberg how much I like when you talk about your fathers and the stories of your, you know, the observations they would make and the things you'd hear as a kid. Because I think I have those with my dad where I think, what the hell is he thinking? You know, but, but, but it's, it's fun stuff because it's different eras and you're different ways of looking at life, at life you know. And it, well, I, I enjoy that story. Oh, man. I sit around wondering all the time. I'll say stuff to my kids now and then or we'll do something now and then where I'm like, someday you'll say, you know what's so weird? One time my dad, right, they'll tell those. They already have some. Well, definitely. As I say, <laughs> my, 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 my sons-in-law already have Pat Durkin stories, things that they, um, I, I have a little sign at, at the end of my driveway. It says, um, um, Deer Hunter's Point, some kind of sign that we picked up somewhere. And then underneath is a, just the Durkins, you know. And, and so my, my son-in-law, Matthew, refers to Deer Hunter's Point as DHP. And every time something comes up where there's a little, um, maybe a disagreement in the family, he'll, he'll kind of look at one of my other sons-in-law, like James, and say, that's not how we do things here at DHP. <laughs> I'm the patriarch of the family now, you know. Yeah, with yeah. 32 stuffed deer in your house. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, and, and an elk and a couple of pronghorns. So. Pat, you mentioned earlier, like... Uh, how you'd get feedback from birders or fishermen or hunters. I would fall out of my chair if someone sent me like a handwritten letter on something that I wrote for the meat eater or wherever. I imagine that's not the case with you though. Like, do you get a lot of handwritten letters? I still do. Yeah. Um, there really old people, you know, in their eighties. Like how frequently? <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, you know, when my newspaper column was, was at its mass circulation, I'd get them pretty pretty regularly, yeah, and uh, and I never knew what to exp- I never knew what to expect when I had an envelope come in with, with that <laughs> with that um you know when they're getting really old and their hands aren't shaking or shaking now and you never knew what what you're gonna be in, what's gonna be inside but um the thing I I can say that's true now is that it was true back when I started writing you know forty years ago thirty five years ago is that you get more good feedback than bad. You, know, you get you get some overall really, or through oh. handwritten notes. I've never I, gotten a negative handwritten note. I, I've gotten some really nasty handwritten ones. I think some of my nasties were back in the nineties. So, you know, that's one thing I've one thing I've noticed. I don't want to turn this into a writing workshop, but one thing I've noticed in my in my writing career is as I've gotten older, I've gotten less of the um, vehement, hateful stuff, except from birders. The birders just don't. <laughs> They don't care how old you are. <laughs> the deer hunters—they know no restraint. <laughs> yeah, the deer hunters around Wisconsin. I think the ones who read my stuff kind of know where I stand on stuff. They and I think I think I've kind of stood the test of time where I'm still writing after all these years. So I think they might just kind of say, "Well, he's, you know, I don't agree with him, but I I'll read him." And but you know, you, you can you can find threads in a lot of those, um, especially like bow hunting sites that are just basically bashing me on various issues in in, in Wisconsin forums, you know, and. and I used to have, I would say, I thought you were my friend. People would send me links to that, to that stuff. As if I want to read all these people bashing on me. I have friends that do that. Yeah. 
they'll send me nice screenshots of people like shit talking me. I'm always like, thanks, bro. Yeah. <laughs> it's good to know. Yeah. I think, <laughs> Made my day. Yeah. I think, usually, I'll sleep better tonight. Yeah. I'll sleep better tonight knowing that's out there. Yeah, my, my wife won't my wife won't read won't open my um see like she won't open your mail because someone's gonna put some yeah. uh anthrax or rice. Well, that, that could be too. Yeah. yeah, if she sees a an, a letter come in without a return address label, she'll never open it. Because those are the ones that usually are the worst. There's got to be a level of passion involved yeah. to like sit down and write you a letter yeah. about something you wrote. Yeah. But it's, it's, um, it's, I can't predict when I, I really can't. No. I have a big envelope where I used to put, because you used to get a lot more of it. Yeah. And I had a big envelope where I would stick letters into it. But mm-hmm. that's kind of slowing down. Yeah. Slowing way yeah. down. Yeah. Because now you can just like, there's so many ways to just really quickly tell someone how much you don't like them. Yeah. <laughs> People are like, People who are excited to tell you that they don't like you, they don't want to wait. They don't want to imagine you being <laughs> sad days from now when they could make you sad right now. They're like, dude, I'm, I want like lightning uh. vengeance, man. <laughs> I'm not gonna, I might not even be mad in a week when he gets the letter, yeah, but I can just feel now yeah. that I can lash well, out. Well, that's that's the thing that's I think it's always intriguing about that is that yeah, you know, most people when they get when they're really ticked off about something, they'll write it down. Then at least for me, when I start getting that way, by the time I got 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 down to where I could be sending it, I, I go back and I delete everything. And I think, yeah, why would I? Why would I want to just keep this thing going? You know, and and plus, there's there's a, a guiding thought, and I really at times drive it into myself, where I don't forget it. Is that this? I, I quote it all the time: Samuel Johnson in the 1700s, great philosopher writer wrote, no man but a blockhead ever wrote except for money. So when you take time out of your schedule and you're a freelance writer to write someone some stupid response this long to something that he sent you, you're killing yourself. You're taking money out of your, out of your pocket. You should be putting that time into something that pays your bills. You know, why are you trying to change this guy's mind? Mm-hmm. And so I was thinking, no, you're a writer. Don't, you know, don't, don't waste your writing on, on this guy or this woman. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. Okay, got any final thoughts? That was a good one right there. That's you're telling Pat that that isn't concluding. <laughs> no, I'm telling you that that was a good concluding thought. I liked it. You got, we'll come yeah. back around to you, yeah. Spencer. Uh, Quick concluder. concluder. If if you like Pat's contributions on the podcast, <laughs> I like this man. This is great. Like the connections you're drawing, you're going to like him even better on the website. Go to media.com, Click on contributors. Pat writes an article every two weeks for us. It's some of the best stuff that we've put out. Thanks, Spencer. Check out his work there. Uh, you'll be entertained. You will not be disappointed. Thank you. Yeah, good research-based stuff, man. Thank you. You guys make a lot of good phone calls. And you have a, a ear. You have an ear for the counterintuitive. Oh, I've never, never been told that before. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I think you, you kind of like things where... You know, you like things where everybody sort of makes an assumption about... Oh, that's got to be what it is. And then you'll be like, you know what? Oh, yeah. I know that it sure seems like that's what it is, but Point. the truth is a little different than what you think, it, than tr- what you've come to an immediate conclusion. You know, what's fun about when you go into research type stuff and watch researchers present their stuff and read about their thought process, so often, they, they're really, these are typically smart people, but so often they get into the research and realize their assumptions were all wrong. And they they've proven it themselves now that you know, that's, that didn't turn out the way I way I did it. And I um, I can just think of 
it's this um I, I keep going back to Tom Heberlein, but he wrote a whole book basically about his his research as a rural sociologist, different things, different assumptions he had about different topics, whether it's wolves up in the UP or people flooding victims out, out in Western states, how they would be responding to different things. And so often your his his um his his hypothesis was just, you know, shattered by the by the actual results. Yeah. And and I think that's that's where like, you know, I don't care who it is, you're talking about people and, and people's you know motivations. You get into people's motivations and why they did something. They, man, you're playing with fire there. You don't know most of us can't explain our own motivations why we do certain things. So when you start making those assumptions about people out in the public eye or um you know whether they're they're scientists or people saying you're pushing an agenda, think, oh heck, most of us we don't know. If we have an agenda, we don't know what it is. You know, we just we kind of operate the way we do, and who knows where that shit comes from. You think people are make assumptions about people who are in the public eye? Oh, all the time, yeah, yeah. And people that, like you know what people like a good story about. They like a good story about what an asshole. Oh, some God, famous yes. person oh, actually yes. is. Yes, they like that better yeah. than what a good guy. Yeah, like you could tell someone. I could tell you a story. About a celebrity who turns out they're a pretty good guy, or I could tell you a story about a celebrity who's actually an <laughs> asshole. Nine out of ten people are going to take the latter, and people can't wait to tell you that shitty story. Yeah, yeah, and it's—I don't know what it is, but I, I look at all these, well, all these different people in history. I don't care if you're talking about presidents or obscure senators. You look at it and you think, yeah, but they're—and the, the net result is they're pretty cool people. They might have had their 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 problems here and there, but. You know, I, I look at my own father that way a lot, you know, where I, I grew up really just puzzled and scared of him at times, just, you know, really wondering what the hell is this problem? But then as time goes on, you look back on his life and, you know, you give a eulogy like I did when he died and you realize, you know, this, this is, I think I think this uh, he's a philosopher, is it Pascal? I think it is, P-A-S-C-A-L. I don't know if I'm There is a philosopher named Pascal. I think he said... I think it's him. I might be misquoting, getting the wrong guy saying this, but he said, a man does not show his greatness by being at one extreme. He shows greatness by being at both extremes at the same time. I like that. And I think that's, that's my dad. You know, that you could be this just um, borderline uh, physically abusive. And then an hour later, track you down and have a real heartfelt conversation with you where later in life, you've, I figured out, you know, he lost his temper he realized he lost his temper, <laughs> and but he's he cares enough about how what he just did to you to come out and track you down and try to smooth things over a little bit. I hope my kids yeah. remember uh, that, <laughs> what, like the, the three times I did that this weekend. That's why <laughs> I always tell my kids throughout the day. I'm like, take note of the expert parenting I'm doing right now. <laughs> Someday you'll you'll like to talk about this. Definitely. Uh, one time, this is my, this is my concluder. Uh, I had just moved. We had moved my family, and I was in a. We weren't in a house yet. We we're just in a hotel, and I'm there with my just me. My wife's not there, and I'm just there with my three kids, and and we're leaving on a long trip for work. So I wake up, and my kids are all sleeping in the hotel room. Like one of them's on the floor, and two are in the bed, and it's very sad for me. Like I, I, we just moved. They're kind of in all this. They're in this uncertain space. And I need to like slip out to go to the airport. And our babysitter is like waiting at the door so that at four in the morning I can walk out and she can come in. And my wife still hasn't gotten to town yet. And I'm like feeling very conflicted. 
about leaving my children, right? Just like the, the, that we had invited this chaos and how they might perceive this. And Yanni and I go to the airport. It's early, five, six in the morning. Mm-hmm. And we run into a buddy of ours whose friend has just fallen to his death in the mountains. And a guy comes up and he wants to take a picture. He's like a fan of the show. Yeah. We do the picture. And then it's not an hour later, get a letter, get an email about what an asshole I am, how really let him down and seemed like I was distracted. <laughs> but the Yanni was cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a, <laughs> it's like, dude, you know, you're walking in on a life in progress at six in the morning. You don't know the context. Right. I'm sorry that I let you down. I have a friend. <laughs> I'm sorry that I was distracted. I have a friend. By things God. about the loss of my, you know what I mean? It's like. I have a friend that knows I, I, I like um, Gordon Lightfoot's music, not just the famous songs. I've seen but, him live twice. Yeah. And I, I, like, I like his stuff. And, but one, but Dude, he, if you but, don't, of course you do. Are you telling me there's a person out there who could have a problem with the, the wreck I'm, of the Edmund Fitzgerald? I'm about, I'm about ready to tell you a guy who has a problem with Gordon Lightfoot. I'll kick his ass. I will <laughs> kick his ass. Go ahead. Yeah. This, this, my friend Tom, well, actually, my friend Tom, that, that Tom is now deceased, but Tom, one time when he heard that I, how much I liked Lightfoot, um, <laughs> he says, I'll tell Sundown. you. Sundown. Can I'll, I sing I'll, while you talk? You go, go, <laughs> Sundown. He, okay, I'll, I'll keep talking. While, while Tom was on this pier in Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin, and a lot of people come sailing off the Great Lakes in the Sturgeon Bay. Oh, yeah. Well, one time, Tom's on, on this pier in, in uh, Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin, and who comes walking down the pier toward him but Gordon Lightfoot. Nice. He, he, had, you know, he was a, a sailor, and, and Tom, Tom's um, friend who works the marina knew Lightfoot enough to where he, he could introduce him. And as he's coming close, this guy starts talking to Lightfoot, wanting to introduce him to Tom, and Lightfoot just walks right by him without even acknowledging him. <laughs> and, and Tom, to, this, to, to his dying day, didn't like the guy because of that. And I said, and I said to him, well, Tom, for all you know, he was just in the bar, and this is back in the days of a pay phone, you know, I said, maybe somebody just called and someone died in his life. Maybe his wife I caught cheating on him or who knows what maybe he's in the middle of an aneurysm yeah I mean who knows you know I said why would you think he would why you take that so personally you know I mean the guy had something on his mind Sundown. yeah when I saw Gord both times I saw him he knows that like a lot of people are there for the wreck especially in Michigan well, that's yeah. big oh, shit definitely, right definitely. Yeah, that's big that's, that's that like every po- Michigander stuff. every Michigander who, who, who has a any kind of right to call yeah. themselves as such yeah. carries a has a weight in their heart yeah. <laughs> about the wreck yeah. of the Evan Fitzgerald. Yeah. Uh, and Gord knows when he's playing Michigan. Well, I saw him in Sioux, Ontario, which is the sister city of the Sioux, Michigan. And then I saw him in Traverse City, Michigan. And he knows that everyone's there to watch him do the wreck and that they're probably going to, a lot of them are going to split afterward. Hmm. But he's come to peace with that. Yeah. And he puts it at an appropriate place. He doesn't wait till like the bitter end. He doesn't wait for an encore. He doesn't want to lead his audience on. He doesn't hit it with them too early where they're not ready. Yep. And he knows where to put it in the act. And he also knows how to sell people on it. So like when I saw him in Sioux, Ontario, he's up there doing his deal, doing all of it. He's got a lot of hits, right? Yeah. But he's up there doing his deal. And uh, 
we're in a big hockey stadium. And all of a sudden he says, um, I can't remember what number, what, what year it was, but all of a sudden he gets up and he goes, um, it was 20 years ago this November, whatever, some cryptic thing like that. And people just come out of their seats. Yeah. Yeah. People come yeah. out of their seats. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. You know, everybody's so excited. He does the wreck of the Evan Fitzgerald, takes him out 11 minutes. And then people just kind of split, man. I, I've never seen that happen. I've seen him. I'm not kidding you. I've seen Gordon Light at least 10 times. And I've never seen people split after he sings that song. But really? I, yeah, I've never have. But maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not paying attention. Yeah. It's a great jukebox song. Because yeah, you can do money through really get that in American Pie back to back. Twenty God DeVito. <laughs> Two yeah, beers. dude. Yeah, that's yeah, right. fifty cents, you get three hours of listen and enjoyment. You yep. know, the Dandy Warhols do a cover of the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. They do, huh? Yeah. Huh. It's not very good. No. Oh, uh, well, Yanni got any concluders? Oh man, it's gonna be hard to come on the heels of all this good stuff. But I got I, got, I heard Sundown, this quote. This brought that's a great song. Pat talking about writing to as a you know wasting your time writing a bad response to somebody. <laughs> um, that that hits home, and it got me to thinking about how my father in law recently we were he was telling my daughter how he just doesn't fight with anybody anymore and doesn't get angry because it's just a waste of time you know and he's so he's over it he's at that point in life (laughs) yeah where it's like freaking you know you just like time just gets shorter and shorter and there's less and less of it and you just like i'm not gonna spend time um doing that anymore but then i think it was it might have been on npr over the weekend i heard this quote i really liked it i think i should share it it's a sam clements quote you know that guy (laughs) some folks call him mark twain yeah there isn't time so brief is life for bickerings, apologies, heartburnings, callings to account. There's only time for loving and but an instant, an instant, so to speak, for that. That's not Mark Twain, is it? That doesn't sound like something he'd say. But all Mark Twain did is bicker and call people to account. <laughs> oh, God. No, That's all he, the dudes did. Just, uh, when did he die? He devoted this, his, this is he devoted his entire, he devoted his entire was, life to calling people to account. Maybe this was late in life. Yeah. All right. Yeah, plus you can also have a quote that like, you can have a quote that uh, contradicts sort of what oh, you've done in life. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you can picture like Mike Tyson being like, you know, you should never punch another person. Right? And you'd be like, oh, yes. <laughs> right? Yeah, sure. That sounds like, uh, I mean, so, so often these days when people quote Mark Twain at my antenna go up because I think uh, Mark Twain's been given all sorts of quotes that he never said. You know, mm-hmm. that, that one actually sounds like like his the way he spaced, paced it and stuff. I think, Mate, that probably is a Mark Twain. But uh, there are some, No, Twain hated Roosevelt. Yeah. Didn't like yeah, Peter Roosevelt. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, Twain wrote, I think, one of the great um, cr- criticisms of turkey hunting ever written what yeah God, oh, he, really don't don't even tell, he, he, i don't even want to know i need to read that <laughs> he he thought it was just the the height the height of um i can't remember what term he used mean-spiritedness to take the wing bone from a turkey and craft it into a call and then fool that bird with its own um bone basically and, and it's an interesting story and but it, it's, it's, it's really good. I, I, I'd like to... I would say, yeah, if you caught a turkey in a live trap and cut its bone out of it, cut its wing off, yeah. cut it loose, yeah. made a call, called it back in and killed it, yes. Yeah. But well, yeah. a different turkey's bone, no. I, I, I didn't say we agreed with him. But yeah. Yeah. 
Can, can I tell one more um, for my concluder? Yeah, because you still got a concluder. Yeah, or, or, I'm, is, Yanni is, tried to rob is, you of it, but I'm going <laughs> to let you have it. Is Yanni done? I'm done. Okay. I'm going to tell another. Um, Unless you find the turkey quote. <laughs> it's, a, it's actually a whole short, short story. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. It's, it's worth reading, though. Um, I'm going to tell you, tell you another cool Rick Kruger story I thought about. This is the sonar enthusiast. The sonar enthusiast. Yeah. I thought about this when, um, I think, is it Ben Long wrote the piece this last week or so on on his do- on trout-sniffing dogs? Yes. Um, the fact that you could t- train dogs to sniff out trout and a species of trout even in, in, while they're in the water. Well, Rick Kruger, <clears throat> I never knew this until I talked to him. He was telling me that, that, that these cadaver dogs Everyone, I always thought cadaver dogs basically were operated on land, and that you know that was only a place they could they could um, be of any use. But he says he had a case. This is only about well, five ten years ago now. Uh, a young man from Kalkanum, Wisconsin, was down in Madison in December, early de- mid December, for a, for a conference, and he went out drinking. And people who know Lake, the Lake Mendota structure, there's a there's a hotel on the on the be the southwestern end of Lake Monona. You can see it from across different parts of the lake. So this guy was out drinking, got drunk, and he banged on some woman's window. He's a 26-year-old guy. And wanted help, basically. Because he didn't, didn't, I don't know if he didn't know where he was, but the woman kind of freaked out and didn't, didn't know what he wanted, so she didn't answer, answer him. But then she saw him kind of shuffling off toward the lake. And they, they think what happened was he tried taking a short cart across the lake on the ice to the, to the hotel where he was staying. Never made it there. He was missing. And the lakes were um, partially frozen. So they, they, they're they pretty sure he tried going across the lake because that's the direction this woman saw him going. Well, they went out there and they had these cadaver dogs. And in, in like 33 feet of water, these cadaver dogs, I guess when they smell what they're out there you know, trying to find, they'll sit down. I guess they just sit and well, here they're out there in the spot, and they they sat. No, yeah, 33, 33 feet of water. And so I asked, I said, "Really? I didn't know this." And he was, "Yeah." And so the, the the police marked that GPS unit, and they could not because of weather and because of conditions, they they couldn't go down and check it out. And so they so Rick got those coordinates of where they where those cadaver dogs marked that spot in Lake Monona. And that was like in December. Come April, the lakes are free of ice. Rick got his boat ready to go, got it all fired up and got verified the GPS coordinates. Went out there, very first pass, finds what he thinks is a curled up body in the bottom of the lake right there. And so he, and he pulls, pulls his camera down as his, his procedures. He brought his camera down and he thinks he could see in that little camera viewfinder what looked like a, a boot or a shoe or something. And he wasn't quite certain though. So he went home, put on his computer, blew it up. Definitely a, a, that guy. And they went out there and went down and got him. And wow. Yeah. But then, but you my, can't rule out. Okay. That dog was a psychic. <laughs> <laughs> you just, I mean, this is why your, we po- assume, this, this is why your podcast we is so assume good. assume, <laughs> That he smelled it, but I think he might have picked up on that that well, unmistakable uh, juju that comes off of a. Well, I, then 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 my my um so my footnote to that one though, when I when I questioned Rick on this, these dogs have that ability to be able to pick out a scent 
33 feet down in the bottom of the lake. He said, well, if you want, if you think that's impressive, he said, he, over on Lake Mendota, not too far away from there, there's these, these um, up behind the UW University of Wisconsin campus, there's this nice, cool ridge along the lake. And up there are some old Indian mounds. And they were out there with the cadaver dogs for some reason doing something, probably looking for someone else. And these dogs kept sitting at a certain spot out there. And the only thing they could com- come to conclude was that somehow, whatever scent is coming off those those mounds up there, oh, these dogs are picking it up. There's something up there that they could pick up. And they, that's where they kept sitting right there. That's interesting. Yeah. And but they might have been psychic about that too. So who knows? Well, Pat Durkin, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. I like how you always come. You got like the things we need to cover. Makes our job easy. Most <laughs> well, enjoyable, Steve. Thanks for having me. Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.